whispers is what I call them, spirit guides throughout my entire lifetime, teaching me lessons that are beyond anything I've ever read in any of the books. And I want to just schluff it off and say, nah, this is BS. This is BS. I'm a skeptic. This is not true. And then it plays out in the real world. It plays out in front of me. I test it. I validate it. And I'm like, wow, okay, this is real. And then I try looking at what's in the lore and I'm like, in the Norse lore. And I'm like, nah, this, this stuff doesn't apply. doesn't apply. And they're just like, okay, fine. Just take a moment and look it over. Think about it. Try it. And I look at it. I try it. I go back to the lore. I do the translation. I'm like, wow, the whisperers were right again. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today's guest is Kadrick Olson. Kadrick is an internationally renowned author, speaker, and teacher who specializes in alternative paths of spiritual growth. He's the author of Runes for Transformation, which taps into the depths of your mind to connect with the runes within, to affect the world around you. He is also the founder and composer of Galdracraft, combining runes, ritual, music, and magic for an immersive experience in the power of rune song. Hi, everybody. Though I've studied many of the world's great religious, spiritual, and mystery traditions, one that I've only had a little time to look into is that of the Vikings, the Norse people of Scandinavia. We've all heard of Vikings from the movies and books, and many of us have heard of runes, but I've always wanted to know more. Well, one evening, I was scanning the new episodes on Gaia TV, and I found an interview on Open Minds with Regina Meredith interviewing Kedrich Olsen, a Norseman himself and a true expert on the Vikings, Norse people, and their spiritual tradition, and the use of runes. I was frankly blown away by the depth of Kedrich Olsen's knowledge, but even more important was at the soul level I could feel he was a very genuine man, that he's really worked deeply on himself and was speaking with the clarity of a wise man. I reached out to Kedrich and he agreed to engage in dialogue with me, answer my questions, and help us all better understand the Vikings, Norse people, and the depth of their spiritual tradition, what runes are, and how and why they are used, and much more. As a bonus, you'll get to enjoy the exchange when Kedrich invites me to a little debate with him regarding the primacy of love as we get deep, if not deeper than any other podcast I've ever done to date. I had an absolutely soul-felt connection with Kedrich, and I'm sure you will too. Kedrich is what I call the real deal, and to top it off, he's offering Living 4D listeners a discount on one of his incredible online courses. I hope you enjoy this deep, meaningful, potent dialogue as much as I did. Enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. I am very excited to share our guest today, Kedrich Olson. He is an expert at the Norse culture and everything Viking. And I happened to come across an interview with him one night while I was trying to find something interesting and educational to relax to before bed. And one of my favorite shows to watch is Open Minds with Regina Meredith. And I came across this interesting looking guy sitting there and I thought, hmm, the picture looks like someone I might want to be listening to. And he was talking about Norse everything. And I thought, let's have a listen. And I was absolutely impressed and blown away with Kedrich Olson's. So Kedrich, welcome to Living 4D. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. This is going to be really great. We've got a lot of good stuff to share with everybody today. 
Yes, you know, I I watched that show and and you know, one of the th- you know, because I'm in the business of holistic health and I've done 36 years of work in the profession and I deal with everything from serious diseases to life crises to orthopedic issues to performance challenges with elite athletes. So I've had time to see just about everything under the sun. And one of the things that we all come to recognize as we do our own inner work and healing work and shadow work and growth work is I think you'd agree it's easy to spot who else has done it, isn't it? It actually really is. It's it just it comes across in their behavior, maybe even the look in the eye. I like to and kind of almost chalk it up to the wacky woo-woo stuff. I can kind of pick up energetically where somebody's at and the kind of work that they've been doing. Yeah. So when you know when I was watching you guys talk and listening to and and uh, listening to your answers, it was just really clear to me that you've gone quite deep into yourself and and developed a very holistic and wholesome approach to life and and spiritual development and healing and and I just realized after even about 10 minutes listening to you I thought I got to get this guy on my podcast and share him cuz people need more people like this to guide them so the, the first question before we get into the other stuff is this is sort of a basic question but it's something that's been nagging at me when we hear about the vikings are the vikings really the embodiment of the Norse culture or are, is there a difference between when we talk about the Norse people and the Vikings? I love that we're starting that question because that's one of my favorite soapboxes to step on when it comes to this subject. If we really want to look at what Viking was back thousands years ago or so, Viking was a part-time summer job. And it was nothing more than just something that people did during the summertime because they couldn't get, they couldn't get their ships in or out of the ports in Scandinavia during the the fall and the winter. Most of the time they went out trading, sometimes colonizing and sometimes raiding, but the word Viking, which we, we pronounce in modern time as Viking, but the word Viking means those who are born of the wick or the narrow strait of water. So it's people who just. They're, they're basically sailors is really what the term means. However, over the years, as the Norse started writing down their own versions of the, the stories and their own tales of how things were, what used to be Viking as a sailor, as a part-time summer profession, be, actually became a scoundrel, a dastardly person. They were always the antagonists in the stories, in the sagas, that met an ignoble end because they led an ignoble life. And I find it very fascinating that in the modern time, we take the word Viking to represent people of Scandinavian descent when around the 12, 1300s, they would use that word to describe in their own language, their own literature, their own language as somebody that they didn't want to be. So it's real interesting to me how the language just used that same word over the years. And we kind of now just attribute it to Scandinavian culture, which... It's not quite accurate. Yeah, that's why I asked. And I now that you mentioned that, I do remember you talking about that with Regina Meredith, but uh, I just wanted to get it clear in my head, and I thought it might be a question other people had. I have a couple other quick lead-in questions on that. Um, when we're speaking of the Norse people, are we specifically speaking of the Scandinavian countries, or are we speaking of a broader 
area? Basically, yeah, it's the Scandinavian countries of Denmark, Norway, Sweden, eventually Iceland and Greenland. There is some overlap with different parts of Great Britain and some different parts of mainland Europe, specifically around the Germanic territories, the Teutonic territories. But we're basically dealing with Scandinavia when we talk about Norsk and Norse culture. Okay. I spent a lot of time in that region. I uh, taught countless workshops and training programs. Uh, Aleko Barbell Companies in Homstead, Sweden, they're one of our major uh, distributors and sponsors. And so I've spent uh, a lot of time. We had a, uh, we had a sponsor in Copenhagen as well, who managed our stuff there. So I've also worked with the Danish Olympic committee. I've worked with a lot of elite athletes from that region of the world. And quite a lot of my students come from that area. So I, I have a real sense of the culture. Um, and I was just curious, you know, what are we really talking about when we're talking about the region that they're from? A couple of other quick questions. Normally, when you see anything uh, Viking in the movies, it's they're always depicted as these great, big, strong, badass warrior types. I'm wondering, uh, you know, like when you think about some of the Roman warriors and the Spartans, they used to start training their children early to prepare them for battle and warfare. Is this sort of depiction a movie type thing, or did they really develop these? men that we call Vikings through some kind of organized uh, developmental program, or are we just getting a sort of a, a movieized view of them? It's a combination of all of that. I love the notion that with every legend, there is a grain of truth to it, and we just need to distill down to the origin of it to find the truth of it. And at the time period when the Viking age was going on, what set the Norse people aside from basically anybody else in the world at that time, is they had these boats that would only take a few inches of water, no matter how full they were of people and cargo, which enabled them to sail across vast distances of ocean, but yet go up the shallows of a river at incredible speeds. So they were able to get in and out of a place if they were doing a raid very quickly. Now, a downside also to the old, old Norse culture of the Viking era is the only time that they would write something down is if they carved runes onto a stone. So they didn't really keep records too much about who they were, where they went, what their own culture was like for themselves. They just wrote down on a stone like so-and-so died and so-and-so, their son raised a stone after them. But what we have are the stories of the people who were literate cultures at that exact same time period writing down about how horrible and awful these people were. For example, when Lindisfarne was raided, which was a, a monastery, they, the monks that lived there were not violent people. They were not aggressive people whatsoever, but they had lots of gold, lots of you know, nice, fancy jewels and great things to have. Now, they wrote that these Norsemen that raided and attacked them were just vicious. They were killing. They were just like beasts that were untamable. Now, we don't know if that was true or not. It could be. But some of the historians have likely suggested all that happened as they came in, that all they needed to do was just growl or show a little bit of aggression, take what they wanted and leave. That may or may not have happened. But what would have happened in, after the fact is those monks would have written back home 
to the home office in Rome saying, oh, these vicious, horrible heathens came in and they killed and they plundered and they destroyed things and we couldn't stop them from stealing anything. And what we end up with is on one side, instead of history written by the winners, a lot of times history was written by the sore losers, which is unfortunate. And when the Norse did start writing down their own stuff in the 1100s to the 1300s, writing about themselves, they had a lot of the same problems with storytelling that we do in American pop culture. For example, if we look at the Rambo movies, how we have one guy with a machine gun taking out countless enemies that are all shooting at him, and they can't seem to hit him with a single bullet, but he can take them all out with one bullet at a time. These crazy, outrageous tales of action and adventure. Well, the old Norse people were no different. They had a very oral tradition. When the day was done and they sat down and they had their meal in the long hall and they sat around the fire, they told these stories over and over of the adventures of their travels to other lands or of the people that they knew that traveled to other lands and they had to entertain each other. So they exaggerated the stories for themselves, and they came up with some really outlandish, tall tales of action and adventure, which is just thoroughly not believable. But we have these tales of the sore, the sore losers. We have these tales of the exaggerated stories of themselves. And we even have some politicized tales of the Teutonic people being very violent and aggressive, which the archaeology does not back up. But all of these things have paired together over the time and the history to make these great, fantastic tales of Vikings that we see in the movie and on the TV shows, which I'm going to throw this out there, has kind of led to some toxic masculine behaviors that is associated with the Norse culture in the modern times because they think they've got to be these big, strong, tough warriors that just go out and destroy and take what they want. And it's like, no, 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 no. If we really look at the archaeological record and we really delve into some of the literature written down by the cultures that had direct daily interaction with the Norse people, we find out that they were as well-educated as they could be. They loved to dress up in finery. The typical Viking of the time period would have actually been found with combed hair, bathing regularly, wearing silk clothing, glass beads looking very much like a dandy. So much so that there is a telling of uh, an English monk, I believe it was, that was describing the Danes coming into England to steal their women by bathing regularly and combing their hair. (laughs) That's great. It's a vastly different depiction than these grubby, muddy, dirty warriors that have absolutely no no culture, no class, no education that we see depicted in the movies. So the the pop culture references do not match the actual literature, the actual literature that's not been exaggerated and the actual archaeology that paints a completely different picture of the Viking period of what these people were like. Well, we know they had to have some education because they wouldn't have been able to been boats, been able to build boats that were so effective compared to everybody else who also has a human mind and human capacity, right? Absolutely true. And if we look at some of the earliest stories of Iceland and the Icelandic people, what we actually find is that no matter what social class a person was born into and no matter what gender they were, 
they were all educated and they were all given that same level of education. And as reading and writing became more prevalent, Iceland actually became one of the most literate countries in the world. And from what I understand, it still is because they loved their education as much as they could get. Now, you mentioned something that was one of my other questions I had, because in various books I've read or movies or whatever, I can't really pinpoint the references at this point. But one of the things you commonly hear is that the Vikings were famous for raiding villages and taking the best most beautiful women from each village with them and then breeding with them. And that ultimately the, what became the, the, the progenitors of the Vikings were these incredibly beautiful people that came from them stealing the beautiful women. Um, and somebody told me that they ended up kind of ending their, their, uh, migration in Iceland. And that's why the women in Iceland are as beautiful as they are. Is there any truth to any of that? I've heard that too. And truthfully, I've not delved into the genetic records and the lineages or any of the literature that could prove or debunk that one way or another. I'm skeptical. I'm very skeptical that that is exactly what happened, especially because in the Norse tales and in the depictions of Norse culture from themselves, the women were just as emotionally and mentally strong as a man granted they may not have been physically but there were women warriors and that is proven archaeologically that women fought alongside men they had control of the home they could press legal cases they had control they had power in their world and really nothing could stop the women from being just as strong as the men in a lot a lot of cases so for a man to go off into another world and take something from them, I'm skeptical. You know, it's interesting. So what you're saying essentially is they weren't as patriarchal as we might suspect them to have been just by hearing about them. That is absolutely true. They were, they were not necessarily a patriarchal culture. And I'm going to throw in a caveat. Pre-Christian pagan Norse culture was not patriarchal nor matriarchal. They were a shared gender culture. But as Christianity came in, as Christianity became the enforced constant, the the misogynistic behaviors and patterns from mainland Europe did seep into the culture and they became patriarchal after Christianity came in. Good old Christianity. Wow. <laughs> it's like... Uh... I could do a hundred podcasts on the the dangers of that philosophy, but uh, and I've lived through it myself, and countless, countless, too many people to even begin to count with very serious mental, emotional, psychological, physiological, traumatic experiences from all that, which I won't sidetrack us with, but I know you know what I'm talking about. Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. The fact that you're here is evidence that you're searching. You're looking into the possibility of bettering yourself, improving the lives of those around you, and maybe even the world. Maybe you're looking for some like-minded people to share the journey with you. That's great, and I hope you're finding all of that here and even more. But feeling a sense of belonging can only get you so far. 
Getting involved and making a real contribution is what sparks true responsibility and meaning in our lives. That's why I founded the Czech Academy and created an educational system that can help anyone become an elite, well-paid holistic health professional, regardless of prior experience. I created the Academy for people just like you. It's for busy people, people with commitments, people who want to make a change in their lives and a real difference in their clients' lives and the world, and you can build the skills you need and still honor your job and commitments because the Academy is all about quality over quantity. You can complete all of our educational materials within as little as five hours a week and begin to practice your new skills immediately. I've designed the lessons to be that digestible for any student. Plus, you'll have the support of exclusive online workshops, group mentor calls, and of course, your fellow students. It's everything you'll need to become a world-class holistic health practitioner and a real difference maker in the lives of those around you. Go to chekinstitute.com forward slash academy. That's checkinstitute.com forward slash academy to apply and get a free consultation with our career advisors and learn more. Applications are open until November 15th, but I may have to close it down earlier because we've had a lot of applications and there are limited seats in the academy. We try to keep the class numbers down so that there's a lot more instructor contact and better depth and penetration of learning. Thank you, and I look forward to seeing you in the Academy, where we achieve personal well-being and share our love and wisdom with the world. Well, can you share an overview of your developmental path and what inspired your connection to the Norse tradition and teachings? Absolutely. When I was growing up, my parents, I was, I'm one of the fortunate people whose parents were open-minded to let me explore different spiritual paths, different cultural paths. At, as my earliest age of remembering, we did go to a spiritualist church, but I didn't know anything about it. Eventually, my parents went to a Lutheran church, and then I started developing psychic abilities, communicating openly with spirits. And my parents said, we need to go back to our old church, which was a spiritualist church where they did the, t- the typical stand up, sit down, stand up, sing, sit down, hear the lecture. But it ended with transmediumship, trans channeling. And every Saturday night we went to a seance. So I got exposed to this. The basement of my parents' house was like a library. There were so many books all over the shelves. It was tremendous. And I was able to read everything from, you know, the encyclopedias to these books on magic and witchcraft and secret teachings of all ages, which was my favorite. Even, you know, I was, you know, 12, 13 years old, I was devouring that book. I was thoroughly fascinated by it. Yes, I've got it. I've studied it quite a bit. I've studied a lot of Manly P. Hall's work. Uh, You know, I have a pretty comprehensive library. Most people that come here are pretty surprised when they see my library, but uh, Manly P. Hall's got a whole section in my library. So, and, And that's an amazing book, by the way. It absolutely is. And as I was reading through that one, and I was reading through all of these other books, it occurred to me that these different magic, mystical traditions and mystery schools that he was talking about, the magical systems that I've been studying, were all saying the same things, just they tended to use different words and have a little bit of a different perspective on the exact same thing. And I knew I needed to settle on one system if I wanted to learn this. I had to find one thing to be my control group so that I could test things out, find out what they were. And at that time, I was tinkering around with different things all over the place. And I found my first set of runes. 
And I'm like, cool, this is neat. This works for me. I can understand it. I have this nice way of connecting with it. At the same time, I was one of those, you know, long haired, crazy kids that listened to the music that would make the teachers and your parents skin crawl, you know, the, the thrash, heavy metal, crazy stuff. And I would just blast it as loud as I could. And I came across a band called Sabbath that started off with a line of their music that was right out of the Havamal that was right in this book of runes that I was reading that was all connecting. I read a book called uh, The Way of Weird by Brian Bates, and all of these pieces converged at the same time. It clicked. It all made sense to me. And I said, great, here's my control group. I may have been you know, 13, 14 years old when I said, this is my control group. This is what I'm studying. This is what I'm going to delve into as a singular path so that I can test all of these other things against. And that led me on the road of really studying Norse culture, Norse runes, trying to translate the old Norse poetry into English for myself. So I have a a way of stepping into the mind of the people who wrote these tales and wrote these poems. And at the same time, I'm always having a lifetime of paranormal experiences. I grew up in a house. It's extremely haunted. You could set something down, turn around, it would disappear. I had a firm understanding of magic. I had whispers is what I call them, spirit guides throughout my entire lifetime, teaching me lessons that are beyond anything I've ever read in any of the books. And I want to just slough it off and say, nah, this is BS. This is BS. I'm a skeptic. This is not true. And then it plays out in the real world. It plays out in front of me. I test it. I validate it. And I'm like, wow, okay, this is real. And then I try looking at what's in the lore and I'm like, in the Norse lore. And I'm like, nah, this, this stuff doesn't apply. doesn't apply. And they're just like, okay, fine. Just take a moment and look it over, think about it, try it. And I look at it, try it. I go back to the lore. I do the translation. I'm like, wow, the whispers were right again. You know, it just blew my mind over the years, the stuff that I put together, some really crazy stuff that I haven't released generally to the public, but I've taught in small groups that blew my mind when I first got it as a download of information. I'm trying to say, no, this is bogus. This isn't true. And then they would say, oh, yeah, how about you go read these little sections of it? Do your own translation of the Poetic Edda or go look into this saga. Go look into the prose edit this thing. And I'm like, what? And I go back and I go back to some of the stuff they gave to me. And I'm like, holy crap, there it is. And I go test it out with some group of friends and some people that trusted me with this stuff. And it played out. It worked. I'm like, what? How is this stuff working? How is this like this? And it's just kind of been snowballing. From that point on, over and over the years, you know, to this day, I'm still a skeptic. The whispers will, you know, come through. I use a black mirror as my primary tool for seance, and they'll come through the mirror. They'll t- explain something to me, and I'm like, "Now I'm in wacky woo land." You know, this is just me making stuff up again. But over the years, I've t- learned to test it, be patient with it, try to find some sort of correlation, even if it's in the lore or in the real world, and then I'm blown away by it just about every time. That's amazing. Uh, how does a black mirror work? It's an interesting little device. It's not quite a scrying tool. I teach a five-week course on how to use it the way that I do. Uh, you could think of it as a portal to another dimension of reality, but truthfully, it's just a piece of glass with black paint on it. Let's put it that way. It's just a piece of glass with black paint. But because it affects the way the mind works, the way that the mind can see to different perceptions of dimensionality. It looks like a three-dimensional world on the other side of the mirror. Then it shifts into like four or five dimensions. I can't explain it with words, but 
perception gets shifted, that it acts as a conduit, as a tool to help the mind go into another state of frequency to tune in and connect with beings on different levels of existence to the point where it's almost like they're in the room with you physically interacting. You could see them reflected in the mirror. If you're doing shape-shifting work, which is part of the Norse tradition, you can actually see your face changing in the mirror while you feel it physiologically. Granted, the body's not changing, but the energy field around you is changing. And it's just this really amazing conduit for communicating with higher entities. I've used uh, candles, candle flames. I've used the, f- I find the fire like, uh, in our, in our, um, we just moved a few months ago to a, a new, exciting, amazing, and beautiful home. But, uh, we had a really nice home with a fireplace, which I lived in for 13 years and I grew up with a fire, but I used to do a lot of connection to various spiritual beings by just meditating and, um, holding my intention on communicating with whoever it is I wanted to communicate in other dimensions or in the afterlife. And I found the fire to be a a phenomenal um, vehicle uh, because it's a transformative agent. And I also know that many people use mirrors and I've had uh, some powerful experiences of my own doing um, various types of meditations and looking into things while I was on various psychedelic medicines, just using a standard mirror, such as I've, uh, I had a, 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 a several times I've done this. I found that if you're on the right medicine, you can actually put your intention into the image of yourself in the mirror and actually move your spirit so that you can actually look back at your physical self using a standard mirror. So I was just curious, how does the black mirror differ, say, from fire, candle, or uh, just a, a standard mirror in, in regard to the mechanics of it, uh, as I've just described? Truthfully, I'm going to say the tool doesn't matter as long as you get the shift in consciousness that you're looking for. So it's all of the exact same thing. It's just different tools work for different people to have right. the same effect. Yeah, so I, I kind of was curious. I, I figured because ultimately we're dealing with the mechanism of the mind. So really, it's whatever a person can use to make the state shift or the shift in consciousness to get to what we might call the other side, other dimension, or other reality. Now we've my second question. There's got a few parts which we've covered. Some I was going to ask you to give us an overview of Norse history and their spiritual philosophy. You've given us uh, some of that. Um, and you've given us the misconceptions of Vikings and Norse, and um, you've given us a great uh, dose of reality on their on their interactions with male female relationships. So, a couple of questions is um, maybe if you could give us an overview of just a general overview because we're going to get deeper into some of these things. What's their spiritual philosophy? If you could just sort of. Uh, give us sort of an encapsulation of that. We like, for example, we, most of us have a, an idea in the West of what the Christian philosophy is. Cause this is a Christian country. Um, some of us know what the Islamic philosophy is if we've studied a little bit, but I've never heard anything on the spiritual philosophy of the Norse people. I'd love, I'd love it if you could kind of give us a, uh, an encapsulation of that. So we have a sense as we move through the interview what was the foundation of their belief system spiritually? 
that's one of the fun things that I love about the Norse culture, both modern and ancient, is there is no one way to pin it down. They were a very tribal culture, very individual for the, the villages and for the regions. And they all had kind of a different take on everything. There is some agreement across the board, you know, about Odin, Thor, Frere, the names of the deities, the roles that they played, the origin of the runes, you know, Yggdrasil as the world tree holding everything in place. There are some commonalities of the stories, but the application of that spirituality is vastly different across regions. You know, for even example, if we look at the, the, right of midsummer as a celebration in iceland midsummer would be a ritual to the god tyr devoted to law and order and that was when they would hold what's called the all thing it was like parliament before parliament existed in norway they would do offerings to odin because that would be the time that they were getting their ships ready to go out to sail so they would make an offering to odin at, for abundance and growth for their their missions that they were taking off with their boats in, can you, um, sorry yeah. to interject, can you, can you just give us a, because a lot of people will not be familiar with Odin or Thor or any of these, maybe when you use those, could you just give us like, what does Odin represent? I, is he the God of the sea? Ah, Odin is the high God. He is the one that has the overview of how everything works. He's got the big picture, the big understanding of how everything works. He is a very a god very much associated with communication and teaching and leadership skills. So he would be the one that would help to organize to make sure everything worked out perfectly. Uh, an interesting way to contrast Odin with Tyr, and Tyr is the one that would be in Iceland around midsummer. Tyr is very much a warrior god of being on the battlefield. He deals with the tactics about the discipline the structure and order of what it takes for a warrior. You know, we talk about the military getting up at 4 a.m. in the morning, they going through their morning routines, they do their training, they're very structured, very disciplined. That's the realm of Tyr, where Odin is very much the big picture, the overall, here's where things are going, here's what I want things to happen, here's who needs to do it, here are the resources we need to route to make things happen. So he's, he's very much the big picture kind of leadership, the sovereign type deity. How about Thor? I mean, we have Thor the movie and things like that, but I, I don't know how how much we can rely on that for a spiritual depiction of Thor as the Vikings or the Norse would have related to Thor. So what's Thor's sort of power or, or category? Thor is the god of the common person. He is the protector. He protects the, the gods, the elves, and humanity from those entities, the giants, so to speak, that would wreak havoc and cause destruction. And in a, in a sense, he is very much aggressive, very violent. He uses a homogenous energy where there is something that wants to come and destroy. He will use a homogenous energy to destroy them. He's very violent, very aggressive, but he is very protective for those who he considers to be part of his own. You know, he's the type that acts first, thinks and makes questions later. Was that really the right thing to do? Yeah, and ready, ready, fire, aim. Exactly. And at the same time, he is the one that does all of the blessing. So when a child is born, Thor is called upon to bless and protect the child. When there is a wedding, Thor is called upon to bless and protect the new home and the marriage and the new family that's coming. 
when a person dies, Thor is called upon to bless and protect the person as they cross over into the afterlife. So he's very much a protected deity at the same time. He's very hostile and aggressive about how he does his protection. So it sounds to me so far that there wasn't a uh, there wasn't a monotheistic conception then. There wasn't, um, you know, if you look at Islam, Christianity, Judaism, which are the classic monotheistic religions, though they all ascribe different qualities to God, which is a paradox because they all claim to be monotheistic. Um, is there a overarching deity or entity or um, being, if you will, that is the source of all the gods in this um, culture? Not at all, actually. What we, the closest we have to that one is the telling of the creation of the world that we know, where Odin, who was part of the creator of our reality that we exist in, existed in a time before time, a place before time. This is like a Ginnick level of reality, as I describe it. This is where we hear the word Gin Unga Gap, which Gin means like the high holy and Unga means younger, gap is gap, you know, it's the big gaping hole. So this was the void of existence that was out there before time, before form and creation. And we know that there were beings that existed there because the lore tells us about that. And then Odin, as an act of rebellion, ultimately, resisted all of the things that was going on in that time before time killed one of the beings that was in that existence and from that being created the reality that we exist in out of basically the body of that being. So we know that there is something before then, but it's not a singular source. It's not a, a mono source of creation, but it is something out there. It, it The way I look at that Ginnick level of existence is what we see in the Kabbalic tradition as Ein Sof, that greater than infinite potential is what existed before our realm of matter, form, and time. Yeah, it's interesting. I could go in all sorts of segues, but uh, there's so many amazing things I want to talk to you about. I'll, I'll either, I'll just sit on it. And if it comes up at the right time, I'll, I'll jump in with some of these other thoughts I have. Cause, uh, I, I want to, uh, there's so many great stuff I want to talk to you about. I don't want to get too sideways, but, uh, as I said, in the beginning with you before we went live on the recording. Um, I, I think I'm going to need lots of podcasts to, to really <laughs> kind of, you know, enjoy the depth of your knowledge because uh, a guy like you can accelerate my learning curve very quickly. So I'm grateful for your, for your wisdom. Since we've all been awakened to the importance of health by the COVID pandemic, there's lots of talk about anything beneficial for our immune systems. But what isn't talked about so much is that sleep is the most essential means of supporting your immune system, and in general, adults around the world lack an average of about an hour of sleep each night, and college students often get less than five hours of sleep each night. Go to any high school, college, or university campus, and it will only take seconds to find young people with colds, runny noses, dark circles, and puffiness under their eyes, along with what I'd call a low-energy posture, all indicators of lack of sleep poor quality sleep, and decreased immune vitality. Organifi Gold is an excellent means of supporting your immune system and enhancing sleep. 
Not surprisingly, Americans are spending $4 billion a year on cold and flu medicine. Organifi Gold is an all-natural organic superfood tea with superfoods that boost immunity through deep sleep. Falling asleep faster, sleeping deeper, and increasing immunity, all with natural superfoods. Organifi Gold helps support restful sleep with reishi, lemon balm, and magnesium, as well as several excellent immune-boosting herbs. You can get some for yourself and your family now at Organifi.com, and while you're there, check out the amazing ingredients in Organifi Gold. You'll be impressed. Go to www.organifi.com, and on checkout, use the code CHECK20, all caps, capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 20, to get your 20% off, not only on Organifi Gold, but anything you want to buy at Organifi's amazing website. While you're there, shop around and enjoy more health and vitality with Organifi. My family and I use Organifi products every day, and we love them. Two two things that are hot on my mind. One, in the historical record of the Norse people, is there any indication archaeologically of visitations from extraterrestrial beings? In a weird sense, yes. In my own personal studies of multiple religions around the world and in the Norse tradition, I've really identified that there are truthfully only three religions in the world. No matter what name we give them, no matter what cultural background we give it, there are still only three religions in the world. There are your seasonal solar cults, which follow the movement of the sun that work with the the 12 signs of astrology. Then there are the belief in extraterrestrial, extra-dimensional beings that come from another place that are of higher origin. Then, for want of a better term, there are the serpent cults, which to me, I think the serpent cults is the religion of those extra-dimensional, extraterrestrial beings, because a serpent cult is all about self-elevation, the ascendance of the soul and a personal identity. In the Norse lore, we are told about the original deities that were on Earth that are called the Vanir. They are very uh, natural-based deities. They are the fertility of the land. They deal with the seasons. And that's where we get our seasonal solar cults from. And the lore tells us that when the Aesir, the high gods, came in, that these gods supplanted where the Vanir were, and there was a big war between the Iser and the Vanir. Eventually, they came to a truce because neither side could win, and they would rule together. Now, what's interesting about this is the word Iser is the Norse term for for the high gods. The word Aus means God, and Iser is plural for that. It's, the language is weird. The root word of Iser is the same exact root word from the Vedic tradition of the Asuras, which in the Vedic tradition have the Devas, which are the high gods, that kicked out the rebellious deities. Remember, here we go back to that rebellion, like Odin rebelled against the high gods of where he was. They kicked out the rebellious deities of the Asuras, and then the Asuras traveled throughout the world. And to me, those Asuras are those extra-dimensional extraterrestrial beings that did teach throughout the world, and the Norse lore does talk 
that Odin traveled the world, teaching many people in many different lands and many different cultures the lessons that they needed to learn, and they all called him by a name that they best understood him by. And so we find a lot of the same teachings of Odin with the teachings of Hermes Hermes Thothtrismistas, I can't say that today, with um, Vishnu in the Bhagavad Gita. These are almost the exact same lessons word for word throughout all of these traditions. And so I'm thinking that the Asuras and the Aesir are these extra dimensional beings that came to teach and eventually were ruled over the Norse people teaching them subversively the ways of the serpent cult about personal ascension, about the growth of the soul into a higher state of being, which we find you know, in the Gnostic traditions, where you become the Christ, which we find in the Buddhist tradition, where you have that divine spark to become the Buddha. And these are the exact same stories that go through. Very interesting. So in the star cults, we for sure have Christianity. Um, I've studied that quite extensively, and I've uh, listened to Jordan Maxwell's teachings on Gaia, and I have many, many books on that. And actually, uh, for those interested, there's a phenomenal book called Christianity Before Christ. I can't remember the author off the top of my head, but it's excellent for showing the very, very direct parallels between Christianity and, and astrology. And uh and Christ as the sun. And there's a number of those. Um, so we also have Zoroasterism, but in Zoroasterism, there is a lot of imagery that looks very est- extraterrestrial. Where would you put Zoroasterism? Oh yeah. Uh, the whole Uhura Mazda thing that is right in line with the exact same tradition, the exact same process. I have a friend in Turkey who shares with me pre-Muslim and Muslim traditions that correlate strongly to some of the Norse stuff and sometimes even word for word. So absolutely. So uh, are you saying the Zoroastrians are not the star cult? They're which cult or which group? I think everything started off as the star cult. And then definitely the interdimensionals came through because Uhura Mazda to me definitely seems like an interdimensional Absolutely. Yeah, okay. And then when the, with the snake people, we have what Aztecs, Mayans for sure, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Any of the depictions of the serpent throughout the world always seems to come with this deep level of wisdom, this high level of spiritual growth. And no matter what culture it is in the world, even if we consider a dragon, which is how it is in the Norse culture, they're dragons, but it's the exact same exact same concept everywhere i think yeah are you familiar with a there I, I i i don't expect you to be familiar with this it's a very rare set of books that i have in my library they're called rivers of life and faiths of all men by uh major general forlong who nope. in the eight yeah he in the 18 late 1800s he was a, a general in the british military but his real interest was the history of all world religions and the faiths of all man. And this is two very large books, probably 700, five to 700 pages each, like two encyclopedias, very large books in which um, these are very expensive books too. But I heard from one of my students told me they found them on the internet, which shocked me because I paid like 1500 bucks for the set of books and the, the diagram 
that comes with the books usually sells for 750 bucks and it's about six or seven feet tall three and a half feet wide it cost me a thousand bucks to have it uh scanned with a high quality photocopy system so i could make a chart so i could preserve the actual document but in there he goes through all the different cults and shows how all of them merge together to create all the world religions today and he gives very comprehensive descriptions of the snake worship people. And what he describes is that when people were in nature, for example, if you were at the top of a mountain and you looked down and you saw rivers, you saw rivers and streams all moved in this serpentine pattern. He said that, for example, when you see a mirage, you can see the heat coming and it's got a serpentine pattern. So he basically said that they felt that whatever was causing life was moving in this serpentine pattern. And so they begin to worship snakes due to the fact that they observe this serpentine pattern everywhere in nature. That makes absolute sense to me. And for the shamans at that time period, who would have definitely seen that in the physical realm would have also experienced that when they went on their shamanic journeying and saw the energetic form of life, because that too moves in serpentine patterns as it flows. So that makes absolute sense to me. Yeah. If you get deep enough on any good psychedelic medicine, you know, you see, you can watch the, the trees breathing, the flowers breathing. I can see stones vibrating like they're, they're, um, like a, they're literally like a jumble of entangled vibrations. And, and I've done experiments where I will use various tones, like, you know, uh, just like you would tone the chakras and you can feel the, the vibration of the stone changing. And even if, as you go up the tone scale, the stone begins to feel lighter in your hand. It's quite a magical thing, but you see this sort of uh, waving energy and and I'm clairvoyant, so I can see a lot of these things even without plant medicines. But um, when I work with plant spirits, they they usually take form. They come up first almost like flames. They the energy coming off, say the leaf of a plant, looks like tiny little colorful flames. But all of a sudden, when I put my intention on them to want to speak to them, they will take the shape of like a little being of sorts. And clearly they're interacting with you. They're just kind of like if you really focus on fire and put your spirit into the fire and communicate with the fire, you have that same serpentine energy in the fire. So I I really can relate to how, and also it's very well known from consciousness studies, studies by people like Gene Gebser and others that studied natives and, and the magical level of consciousness that they were very, very clairvoyant and that they really were in a much deeper fusion with nature so that they actually saw these energies very naturally, which is very unusual for people today because they're so trapped in their heads and belief systems. But so it's, it's all very, very interesting stuff. Who, so maybe you could just uh, tell us who are some of the common religions in the other group that you mentioned. We've talked about the star people. What, what was the second one again? Uh, the interdimensional extraterrestrial type beings. What are some cults we might know from that group? I think they're all over the place. Um, trying to rack my brain thinking of this one. Certainly anytime we hear tales of something like Hermes Thoth Trismegistus or 
So somebody who's traveling around that seems to come from another land, but you know, they say they come from far east or they come from over the ocean because they didn't necessarily have a better way of depicting that. And then they're elevated to a, a high level deity, so to speak, in that tradition. So it's any of those kind of traditions. And sometimes we see where the solar cults intertwined with the interdimensional cults and they become kind of one and the same over the years. But if you follow the evolution, you see how it changed and it grew. And you see too in Islamic, uh, you know, I have a very comprehensive section on world religion because I've, <laughs> I've had to study world religion because I kept tracking people's, well, first of all, I, I found wherever there's a behavior that leads to health problems or some kind of physical, emotional, or mental dysfunction, you can never really resolve that until you get to the belief that's driving the behavior. And once you start looking into the beliefs, you can track almost all of them back to some kind of religious programming. So early in my career, working with seriously challenged people who the medical system had failed with, I found the only way I could really get to the to the driving forces behind a lot of the behaviors was to look at the belief systems, which always took me back to religions. And in an article I wrote, it was kind of funny, this article resulted in a surgeon writing to me. I said, a Christian's knee is different than a Muslim's knee is different than a Hindu's knee. And the surgeon wrote back and he said, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I need you to explain that to me. And so what I wrote back to him was, a Muslim prays five times a day, which has a very different effect on the knee as someone who doesn't do that. Just like if someone's a carpet layer and they're on their knees all day, they're much more likely to get a patella bursitis. I said, I'm not speaking orthopedically. I'm speaking about the software driving the knee, which determines the behaviors and the uses of the knee, which can be linked to the common injuries of the people that have those belief systems. And, and so he understood my point. But uh, looking back through a lot of my books in the Islamic tradition, you see lots of pictures of boats flying and, and very mystical things. Even in Taoist lore, you see that. And, and what I think when I see that is that either they're depicting dreams or they're using the only mechanism they had within their own life experience. Like people wouldn't have known how to describe a flying saucer. So they might've thought it was a flying boat would have been the closest they could conceptualize it. Do you think there's some true truth to that? Oh, I do 100%. I am a firm believer of extraterrestrial visitation stretching back through the ages. And whether we're talking about the Vimanas of the Vedic tradition or the wheels of light from the Book of Enoch and all of these different things, they're all kind of depicting the same thing in their best way that they could with the tools that they had to explain what they were experiencing. To me, those are absolutely extraterrestrial beings or even interdimensional beings. I don't know for a fact because I've truthfully never have a, I want to say that I've never had an encounter, but I'm never remembering distinctly the encounter that I've had with them. Yes. It's, it's, this is an interesting point you're making, and I'm going to put a twist on it. When we're talking about interdimensional beings, how does one authentically differentiate that from an astral experience? Because when we're in the astral dimension, which is said by many to be far more vast than the physical dimension of the universe, and I've spent countless 
<laughs> too much time in the astral realm working with various beings and exploring different dimensions in there. So you see what I'm saying is when we're talking about interdimensional, I don't really know how people say, oh, this is a fourth dimensional being or a fifth dimensional being versus an astral being, which could be any level of the astral dimension. Have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, actually. And truthfully, there is no way for us to discern it. What I understand is they operate under a different type of physics than what our physics works here. And I'll explain how I understand this in a little bit. And that they're able to transition from different states of reality into ours, whether it's physically, I don't know about that, but definitely there's a consciousness connection that happens. And where I've come to understand this one and how they work is doing some of my work with the mirrors where I know that I'm connecting with some sort of interdimensional being. I had a series of sessions where I'm like, I want to experience your world in your way. I want to see it or whatever your perceptive range is. I want to understand it in that way. And over the course of three sessions, I failed miserably to do so. And I'm like, what is going on here? And so we went back on common ground and they were explaining to me is that you do not have the capacity to perceive, let alone understand the reality that we exist in. You can only understand what you already know, what you've already perceived and what you've already experienced. Therefore, the information we share with you, you have to interpret that with the schemas and the patterns that are already built into your own mind so that you can interpret that information for yourself for what that information is. And we will meet on the common ground where we can overlap and agree on what that information is. And if you don't have that foundation, you will not be able to interact with us. We will not be able to interact with you because we're doing the same thing on our end. We are interpreting your reality to the best of our understanding and instead of seeing it exactly how your reality is to you. Right. Hi, everybody. I know that you're all aware of the importance of vitamin C. There is a mountain of research on it, but not all C is created equally. I love Paleo Valley's Essential C Complex because it is the real deal, bioavailable. And I wanted you to hear right from Autumn Smith, founder of Paleo Valley, why their Essential C Complex is so unique and something you definitely want for your family and your children. Autumn, tell us about your Essential C Complex. Well, I was shocked to learn as a holistic nutritionist that 90%, over 90% of the vitamin C on the market is derived from genetically modified corn, and then it's processed with highly volatile acids. And so I knew I had to find a better way to get all of the powerful benefits of vitamin C. So what I did was I dove into the research and I found the three most vitamin C-rich superfoods on the planet. That's unripe acerola cherry and camu camu and omla berry. And then I just packed them into capsules. And the benefits are amazing because you're not only getting vitamin C, but all of the other wonderful benefits that come from these amazing superfoods. So to get access to this complex, all you have to do is go to paleovalley.com and you can use the code CHECK15 at checkout. That's lowercase C-H-E-K 15 and you can save 15% off. Are you familiar with the, uh, the Law of One by Raw, that series? A little bit, yeah. That's, it's absolutely amazing. So when you're talking about raw or you're talking about Seth or Abraham or any number of these channeled beings, you know, 
Raw speaks of themselves, if I remember right, as a sixth dimensional conscious entity, but they say that they don't actually need a physical body anymore. Um, so a lot of these, uh, we'll call them beings, they're, they're really, um, the best way I can categorize it is if you think of the mind as the ocean of the ether or space time itself, that would be the relational mind. You know, it depends how you want it. If you start getting into non-relational space, then you can go into hyperdimensional space, which is a whole other category. But if we're if we just imagine that all that's conceivably uh, in existence is in an ocean, if we want to take the word ether out, call it an ocean of consciousness, that these entities including our own minds, would be like eddies within the ocean. And one of the descriptions I've given in the past is if, if you're standing next to a river, you could see an eddy that might have a bunch of rose petals in it, and then one three feet away might have a bunch of twigs in it or some ducklings caught in it. And those would be representations of an individual mind that has self-perception but really is part of the entire river or the ocean, so to speak. So it seems to me that what we're interacting with on, on a lot of these interdimensional situations like, like a, a, raw, a raw or a Seth are entities that may have once been in physical form, may even have been human, but have evolved their consciousness to the point where they don't actually need a physical body to be conscious and even have self-awareness. I'm curious what your thoughts on that are. Yep. I'm going to take that in two different little directions on that one. I want to build on that metaphor because I love your idea that consciousness as an ocean with the eddies. And let's say that that is our reality that we live in. We live in the denser ocean, but the interdimensional beings that we interact with and that we connect with is the air. They live in the air that's above that ocean and sometimes the air intermingles with the water. Sometimes the water intermingles with the air. Sometimes a fish will jump out of the water or a whale will jump out of the water into the air and you can experience it. Sometimes a, a bird will fly out of the air, dive into the water. And this is kind of how we can sort of interact with each other on that level. And if we take that a few steps further, I... In the Norse tradition, and then what I found in other traditions, there is the energy of the body that we create. In some of the Eastern traditions, right, we call that uh, chi, ki, prana. In the Norse tradition, I've come to understand that as suddenly my brain is leaving me on the other lao. It's called lao in the Norse tradition. It's the exact same stuff. It's the, the subtle energy of the physical realms. But when you're interacting with these higher level beings, these interdimensional beings, the deities or angels or whatever you want to call them, they have a higher level energy, which could be considered soma, which could be considered ichor. Uh, in the Norse tradition, I call it Eli leaf. It is this higher level substance that these beings interact with, that they consume, or that is a part of their being, just like chi and prana is a part of our being this ichor and soma is a part of their being and when we can communicate it's just information sharing 
but we can actually exchange energy for energy. And this is where we have the ocean mixing with the air and the air mixing with the ocean so that we can elevate, you know, maybe even thinking of the ocean water evaporating into the air. So that's where the elevation of the individual raises their prana into this higher state of being, or in the Norse, as I consider it, Lao into Ellie Leaf. Well, you know, I love that. Uh, I love how you built on that because it it's actually creates a very good metaphor. And, and at least for me, it cl- creates a real clear picture and it, it brings up an interesting little correlation. We now store tons of information in what we call clouds. Yes. Right? So uh-huh. what do we have clouds? We have clouds full of artificial intelligence that monitor and store information and <laughs> take all the things off the internet that we don't want, that they don't want us to see. But the point being is what, what you're talking about really, when we're talking about a cloud, we're, we're talking about an entity that is in a higher vibrational state than rain, for example, which would be more material. And so I can easily visualize because look, if you know, people like you and I understand this, I'm sure there's all sorts of left brainers that spent too much time in a Christian Sunday school going, Oh, these guys are devil worshipers and scientific materialists saying this is a bunch of bullshit. But the reality of it is, is that, you know, you see what you believe and you believe what you see. And I've made it my life's work to make sure that I never let myself get caught in a belief system because the instant you do that, you stop learning. And so one of the reasons that I have done so much research with plant medicines myself is because they dissolve the default mode network and they make the ego very, very porous to massive flows of information. And through working with my soul for so many years, I've been able to use the higher consciousness invested in uh, me as an individual source of consciousness to ask questions. For example, I may not have a concept for a being that I see, and I've seen a lot of wild and interesting beings out there. And so I'll say to my soul, can you explain what this is? And my soul will be an intermediary for me and inform me. And I've learned so damn much stuff. And like you said earlier, it's undeniable. I've brought so much stuff from these experiences into the world and tested it and went, oh my God, this is a whole new way of doing this or doing that. And lo and behold, it's helped countless numbers of people. Now, I don't often tell people how the information got there because they would then have a bias against doing the exact thing they knew to do to get healthy. But in this case, I'm being very, very open about it. So I think that it just really... But my other point I was making is, you know, when you look at when you look at the world through clairvoyant vision, what do you see? You see everything's alive. You see that I see I can see entities in empty space. I can interact with people on the other side. I do it all the time. I do it for a living. Countless is the number of people who are in a state of trauma and and not healing or have a disease because of some guilt and shame over unresolved closure with someone that passed away like a father, mother, husband, wife, child. And the next thing you know, I'm the the person standing in the room giving me messages to give them and they're completely and utterly just mind boggled. I'm telling them things that they that I could never possibly know, but they're dead accurate. So what I'm saying is when you really evolve yourself spiritually to the point that you're open enough to see the mystery right in front of you, 
I think it's God's greatest joke is that everything that seems to be hidden is right in front of you and it's inside of you. And what my point is when you see how much dynamism there is right here, right in front of us, that why would the universe be any different anywhere else? It wouldn't make any sense. Well, that's one of the universal principles that I operate off of is that the universe is a reflection of itself in all ways. It's a strong correlate to the hermetic maxim, as above, so below, as within, so without. It's it's just another way of saying that. Yes, and as below, so above. Yeah, that's that's great. Uh, Very, very fun and interesting stuff to talk about because, you know, these conversations aren't had very much. And I think part of the reason that we have so much obesity and, and so much chronic disease is People are really suffering from uh, being in a very flat world where, you know, what is life? You you go do a job you don't like to do. Most people do. Research shows about 70 to 75% are not working in a job that they even enjoy at all. Um, research shows that 50% of all people with uh, that graduate from universities are not working in the field they're trained in through their university training within five years. A huge percentage of people go to university and take courses and get degrees and things they didn't want to do because of pressure from their parents. So we've got this world full of people that are working at jobs they don't enjoy and coming home and watching television, being programmed into belief systems that reinforce the agendas of the people doing the program. So really, they they don't really have a whole lot of... Um, spiritual connection to things that are beyond this sort of mundane existence. So they have to, uh, you know, drink alcohol and, and find ways that are socially acceptable to, to create a state shift. But when you practice shamanism and you induce trance states with drums or with chanting or with rattles, or you have peak states with exercise or, sexual peak states. I find that the whole world opens up to such a a vast degree that it makes it so much more interesting and so much more exciting. And you realize that you have so much more wisdom around you, whether it be the wisdom in a tree or a plant. I teach my students how to talk to trees and plants and get any kind of advice that they can get from them, healing advice, whatever. And a lot of them come in dead skeptical and think I'm nuts. But I say, okay, listen, if you're brave enough to just stop believing that it's not possible and follow the steps I'm about to teach you, I'd say 98% of them are just mind boggled at what happens when these plants and trees start communicating back to them. I've had many of them just break down into tears because they were so sad that they spent their whole life being so encapsulated into a material existence where they thought plants and trees were nothing but you know fiber and wood. So I, I just feel that um, these kinds of conversations are important and, and finding people like yourself and myself that give people tools and techniques to go explore these realms because then you realize that you're not alone. No matter how alone you feel, you're never alone. You're, there's wisdom saturating the entire universe. At least that's my experience. How do you feel from that perspective? You're absolutely right. And that hits so close to home. It's kind of hard to to really relate that because I am one of those people who have lost close to 200 pounds. And 
we're actually going through a weird cycle of going back to gaining that again. So I'm checking in to find out what's going on. And over the years, as I've developed the deeper spiritual intuitive connection, you're absolutely right. The world opens up. I see the benefit of it. I've the stuff I've taught to people, I've seen their lives change. And for the the benefit in some ways, it's actually gotten me in trouble with some groups because of my willingness to teach anybody who is who is honestly asking for it. And that is still one of the challenges I have is like, I know the benefits of connecting with yourself spiritually, about opening yourself spiritually and becoming really in tune with your intuition and how that connects to everything. But how do I enumerate those benefits to the people that may never have experienced it, that want to eschew it, that want to poo-poo it and blow it off as, no, you're just being another one of these you know, wacky woo-woo con artists trying to steal money away from people. And I'm like, no, this is profound. It's beneficial. Here, try it. And it's it's just so hard to break through this wall that's been built up with a lot of the modern culture of like, no, I just need my TV and my beer and I'm good. I'm like, yeah, no. yeah. I'm I'm so good. I'm I'm dying. <laughs> and eighty-five percent of the world population is on medical drugs for various disorders and dysfunctions. I mean, the statistics of how good we are is shocking. I mean, all we got to do is look at the events of the world and it's dead obvious. And we keep making the same silly mistakes over and over at every level from politics to religion, to banking, to military use, to abuse of chemicals and science and technology. It's like, uh, ladies and gentlemen, guess what? Your world is much bigger and more beautiful than you actually realize. And if you think Disney is amazing, wait till you see what happens when you start practicing real spirituality and activate your voyances so you can see, hear, and feel what your very narrow band of senses isn't programmed to give you. But interestingly, are you familiar with Rudolf Steiner's work? A little bit, yep. Well, Steiner taught that all spiritual practice practices were specifically to develop subtle body organs that were basically the equals of each of our physical senses. So spiritual practice develops spiritual eyes. They develop the capacity to digest spiritual concepts, a spiritual stomach. So every one of our physical organs is actually a physical copy of a subtle energy organ that can be developed and as souls grow through spiritual training and lifetimes of experience, then they develop a physical correlate as a, in their light body. And we reach a point where we can become conscious when we die and then can choose our path instead of it being handled for us by higher dimensional beings or, or other mechanisms that are proposed. Um, I, I have my own thoughts on that, but the point being is, is that once we grow these abilities, then every single time we add a voyance, in other words, if you go from clairvoyance to clairvoyance and clairaudience and clairvoyance, audience, and then you add sentience, then you add intuitive knowing. Well, one definition of spirituality is connection to a greater whole. And as we heal our belief systems and become more open to the big question, what's really going on here? Let me get any ideas of archaeology or university out of my head and be brave enough to explore for myself. Well, lo and behold, you find that as you get into these practices and develop these 
subtle organs, the size of the universe becomes, uh, you know, or the world, if you will, becomes infinite. It's like if you can conceive it, it's probably already right around you. I love that we're going here because as I'm working on building up a shadow course, a shadow clearing course, the whispers have been pestering me almost incessantly with the next course that I have to develop, which I already have all the materials. I just need to organize it is uh, the anatomy of the soul from a Norse perspective where we look at a great idea. We look at the seven chakras and how they correlate to the runes. We look at the three power centers, you know, like we find the Dantian from the Eastern traditions. They're in the Norse tradition, and I work with those. And then the subtle bodies. I've got a six-pointed star diagram that I've been using for over a decade. This is part of the secret stuff that I don't, don't teach openly, that I teach just a few selective people that I need to bring out to the world. This six-pointed star diagram is a cosmological map of seven of the nine worlds of the Norse tradition. And it is a map of the seven subtle bodies that come to us from the Norse lore, like the And and the Other, which is like the magnetic body and the electric body and other traditions, the Huger and the Mini, which is like the mental body and the emotional body. And I've got runes that correlate to that. I've got different exercises for activating these things. And it's just like you said, they've given me a hierarchy of understanding, like awareness is the observation of information in one of these subtle bodies or in the physical body that collapses it from probability to actuality just by observation. And that consciousness is the interaction of multiple bodies looking at that same information where sentience is taking that to an ability to understand and how that information applies to all of the subtle bodies to this higher level understanding that encompasses the whole being that I don't know that there's a word what's beyond sentience, but there is something that's beyond there. And they're giving me this whole hierarchy of progression to teach this one through practical exercises. Like when we're dealing with a conscious body they've got exercises to activate the prefrontal cortex so that you are using both the brainstem and the lower limbic. So you have your emotional sense, but you have your sensibility of the prefrontal cortex and how that correlates to the higher self the self beyond the self brings that in and that you can shift that with your emotional energies and you can use the to drain energy out that you don't want from the emotional body and replace it with the energy you do want and how you use breath with the magnetic and the electric body to channel that energy that you need. I'm just like, whoa. And it really gets into the interaction of all of these subtle bodies to create a whole body experience. And ultimately, exactly what you were saying, the purpose of this one and I'm going to reveal a secret here that I don't think I've ever revealed publicly ever. My secret goal in my entire lifetime is to teach people how to survive death. And by what I mean by that one. Stay awake. Yes, exactly. Is when we know we go through a traumatic experience that the shamanic teachings tell us that a traumatic experience can shatter the soul a little bit. A part of the soul breaks off. Well, yeah, soul death, loss. Exactly. And death can be so traumatic that it shatters a soul completely and that person does not survive that moment of death. I hate talking about that because it's so frustrating when people want to go into a seance situation, when they want to get in contact with their loved one, but they can't do it. And I'm like, I'm sorry, maybe that person didn't continue after. I hate 
talking and thinking about that, thinking that the afterlife is not guaranteed. But this is like the big picture that the whispers have given me over this lifetime is teach people coherence of the soul so that they can put all of these pieces and parts together to interact together, that they're aware of them and they stay awake so that they understand what's coming and they're able to survive that transition as a whole being. Yes, there's a whole lot. And I'm working on doing a series on death. So my urge is to start getting into this with you right now. But I think what I want to do is maybe have a podcast with you just on death, because I do a lot of work in that realm myself and have a lot of experience with it. And um, I have a lot that I could share with you with regard to the concept you just shared. But I, I want to make sure we get to some of the other things. But I'm going to leave that as a cliffhanger so that we can have a because i think that deserves a podcast of of itself uh and i i'd love to talk to you about that for however long it takes to work through that because i think some of the things i've learned and been taught might also as you're doing for me stimulate creative processes and make connections that could not only help us but help a lot of people um come to a a, a more freeing awareness i think that'll be a very beautiful thing for people Hi, everybody. My friends at Bioptimizers have formulated the most complete, potent, and first full-spectrum magnesium formula ever created. It's called Magnesium Breakthrough. If there's one mineral you should be worried about not getting enough, it's magnesium. Magnesium is the body's master mineral, providing over 300 critical reactions, including detoxification, fat metabolism, Energy production and even digestion is influenced by the presence of magnesium. But there are two big problems here. Magnesium has been largely missing from U.S. soils since the 1950s and probably soils around the world wherever commercial farming is done, which explains why it's estimated that up to 80% of the population may be deficient in magnesium. Most magnesium supplements only contain one or two forms of magnesium, when in reality there are at least seven your body needs and benefits from. If you take this later fact into consideration, it's logical to conclude that 99% of the population is likely to be deficient in two or more essential forms of magnesium. The good news is that when you do get all seven forms of magnesium, pretty much every function in your body is upgraded from your brain to your sleep to reducing pain and inflammation, and it all improves fast. The Bioptimizer's formulation team even included trace amounts of something called monoatomic magnesium, which helps make all the other forms of magnesium more bioavailable. With magnesium breakthrough as part of your daily supplement routine, you are likely to reduce your stress levels and feel relaxed and at peace, boost your immune system, maintain optimal heart rhythm, sleep faster and deeper. Better sleep quality is a surefire way to reduce your stress and to enhance overall performance. Sleeping better and having all seven forms of bioavailable magnesium to support your body is a great way to lower cortisol levels, which not only enhances cortisol melatonin balance, but people with adrenal exhaustion, often experiences chronically low energy levels, are likely to experience better short-term memory and improved cognitive performance as a result of enhancing their magnesium profile. And to my knowledge, Magnesium Breakthrough is the most complete magnesium supplement blend available. To get your magnesium breakthrough, go to bioptimizers.com forward slash living 4D. That's bioptimizers, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com forward slash living number four small d. And your checkout code for your 10% discount is all small case 
P-A-U-L-10 for your 10% off any order. Enjoy Magnesium Breakthrough, sleeping better, looking better, and feeling better. One of the, a little concept shift here. I'm curious, what is the Norse view of sex in the body? Is it sacred or profane? Is it beautiful, dirty? Is sex a spiritual act or just an act of, of uh, base animal biology? And, you know, Christianity and, and not just Christianity, uh, some aspects of Islam, Judaism, for sure. Uh, some aspects of Buddhism have got this real sad distortion around sex and the body and the denial of the body. And, and, you know, I won't belabor the point. I I'm very sure you know what I'm talking about. I'm curious, what's the North, the Norse view of sex and the body. It gets a little muddled through the ages because we have to remember that all of the extant literature was written down by Christians Bishop, they Uh-oh. were usually bishops, <laughs> so they filtered out a lot of the stuff that could have been documented. And but some of the stuff is there. And one of the things that I love about the work that I do is when I translate the old Norse literature for myself, I approach it with a mystical mindset, which is stuff that gets missed by some of the people that have the PhDs in Norse lore. You know, they're great. They're also absolutely wonderful for their translation ability, but they don't understand the mysticism underlying it, so they miss it. And sexuality is in the lore, but it's hidden in a very careful and subtle way. For example, if we look at even notions of monogamy versus polyamory, it's in the lore. In the pre-Christian world of the Norse people, polyamory was not a big deal. It wasn't a problem. But when Christianity came in, there's a story about a, a pagan man who married a Christian woman. And when he went on his travels, he married another woman because that was perfectly okay. But when he came back home, the Christian wife would have nothing to do with it. So he had to set his extra wife up with another house on another side of the hill where his Christian wife couldn't see it. But he was still allowed to visit, still allowed to be with his other wife. And we see the deities have polyamorous relationships, and it's completely acceptable in the pagan tradition. And when I really steep down into it, there's some interesting parallels, even with the Vedic tradition. And one of the things that I go back to, I wish I had released a video a few years ago I put put out, because I do a lot of studies with men. I do a lot of teaching with men. And one of the things that I told put in this video is we're going to talk about two different deities here in the Norse tradition. One is Freyr. The other is Freya. They're brother and sister. And they represent masculine and feminine fertile aspects, not only of the land, but of humanity. And Frere is your ability as a man to appreciate the sexual beauty that you find in another person. Now, if somebody is heterosexual and they're a man, the beauty that they see in a woman is not the beauty in that woman. It is Frere's gift to that man that he can appreciate the beauty of that woman. And if he goes out and tries to defile it and say, hey, get over here, lady. This is, you know, I'm here. I'm here. That is complete desecration of that sacred gift of Frere to that man. But if he can go to that woman and say, you know, I really appreciate the beauty that you're bringing to the world. You're making the world a much beautiful place. 
by the effort, by the work that you do, by being who you authentically are in this world. And I appreciate you as a woman. That's a sacred gift of Freya. And the women have that exact same thing. The sacred gift of Freya is her sexuality. It's her ability to appreciate the beauty of other people, of, of men. And so these gifts that Freya and Freya gave to man and woman, no matter if we're straight, gender, bi, it doesn't matter. Your sexuality is a sacred gift from these deities. And if we can treat it as a sacred gift rather than something that is derogatory, that is something that is uh, you know, awful and disgusting and shameful, but we see it as a sacred thing, then we're actually connecting with a higher sense of ourself, a higher aspect of what it means to be a sacred man or a sacred woman by tapping into that. And the Norse lore takes it one step further that I absolutely love is remember how we talked about uh, the seasonal solar cults having deities that range in the numbers of 12? The Norse does the same thing. In the Eddas, they enumerate 12 gods and 12 goddesses. Sometimes they're married, sometimes they're not. But let's go back in Odin, for example. Odin is the high god, the leader, the guy who has the big picture of everything, who is great at communication and teaching and leadership skills. His wife is Frigg, and the Norse tells us that Frigg is the only deity, the only being wise enough and powerful enough to outsmart and outwit Odin, and sometimes she does it, and she has like an equal footing on the world and of all things that Odin does, and what this tells us, the same way with like Freyr and Freya, that the gods, the male aspects of the gods are like the Shiva of the Vedic tradition where the goddesses are like the Shakti. Shakti. Exactly. You need Tantra. Exactly. You need both of them working together harmoniously to get things taken care of. I'm going to give an example of the runes for this. For example, we have the rune Burkana. Looks like the letter B. It is a rune of feminine fertility. It is the fertile land. It literally means the birch tree, but it deals with fertility. It is feminine fertility. It's Freya. We have Ingus, which looks like a diamond. It is the rune of Frere. It is masculine fertility. It is the seed. And if you take the seed of Ingus and you plant it into the fertile field of Burkana, then that is where you get the rune of Yera, which is where we get the word year from. But the rune of Yera is that abundance. It's that expansion. It's that growth and prosperity that comes from the, the prosperous resources and the potency of the seed mingling together. You have to have the masculine and the feminine in equal amounts together, not one over the other, not one dominating. And that is beautiful and that's sacred. And it's an absolutely wonderful thing. Well, it, it fits my conception of God. Um, trying to make a long story short, but really the, the simplest way to describe it, and this is how I put it to my students. I ask people, if God is love, first of all, I say, how many of you believe if God is God, then God is love? Almost everybody raises their hands. I say, well, if God is love, then what type of love would be the most godly? Most people come to the conclusion, unconditional love. And I say, well, if God is unconditional love, then by definition of having no conditions, it means God is no thing 
yet here we all are in a massive, massive universe full of stars, galaxies, planets, moons, asteroids, and obviously us and all living beings. Therefore, God must also be everything. Does that make sense so far? I'm following you. Yep. Right? So the emptiness, no thing, is the feminine principle, or what David Bohm would call the implicate order. And the everything is the fullness of God, which would be David Bohm's explicate order. The emptiness, yin, would be the womb, yin, the yin principle. The fullness would be yang, that which is projected into existence as something. So ultimately, what you've got is the interaction between something and no thing. And we know for sure that the law of impermanence, as stated in Buddhism, is very real. Nothing physical, everything physical has a shelf life on it. It begins to deteriorate as soon as it's formed. And so the interchange between that which is empty of or feminine, yet gives birth to that which is something masculine, is a constant interchange, and that interchange is the dynamics that produces spirit. Spirit is the transitional experience of moving from one state to the next, something empty becoming more full, something created becoming more empty. So it, it, the point I'm driving at, do you see the sex principle is inherent in all aspects of creation and even an atom as you know, is 99.99 to the sixth or ninth decimal place empty, yet creates a solidity that is, you know, obviously creating everything around us. So you see, even an atom is highly sexed. So it seems to me that if we really say, okay, what's really going on throughout the universe, it would seem that the universe is a perpetual act of sex. I completely agree. It is perpetual act of the union of whatever we would consider masculine, feminine, yin, yang, or, and what you were describing reminds me of that quote from Hermes Thoth Trismegistus, which was a little bit simplified, sort of, by Voltaire, with this God is the circle whose circumference is nowhere and whose center is everywhere. Is everywhere. Yeah. I love that quote. Yes, it's beautiful. And, and I use that quote to make a point. And the point that I make is the importance of learning to take responsibility and manage the powers of our own mind. Because if God is a circumference, if God is a sphere whose circumference is everywhere and a, and a center that is everywhere, a circumference whose sphere, <laughs> a sphere whose circumference is nowhere and a center whose presence is everywhere, then it means that we are actually, by definition, as a sentient being, the center of the universe at all times, because you know for sure you are there. You know you're listening to me now, and I know I'm talking to you right now, but because I'm a point of consciousness and you're a point of consciousness, and there is no boundary to the sphere of creation, it means by definition, everything we put out has nowhere to come back to but us, which is why Confucius's principle of do unto others as you would have them do unto you is absolutely the most truly spiritual and religious principle there is. And that also reminds me of, we're back to the serpent cults. One of the big things that they really look for in that is self-apotheosis, 
which you are the center of your own universe and you come to recognize that. And so is everybody else. So we meet the sacred within each of us by recognizing the sacredness within. Right. And this is why I tell people love is a boomerang. Hi, everybody. I'm super excited to tell you about Symbiotica's product called Rumi. And not only is Rumi an amazing sleep product that will enhance your dreaming and your psychic recovery, but Rumi's my favorite poet. So when a great product like that is coupled with my favorite poetry, there's only one thing I can do, and that's get Sherveen to come down here and tell us all about how it works and why you should use it, because he formulated it. So Symbiotica has the master here. Go ahead and tell me, Sherveen, what's up with Rumi? Well, we wanted to call it Rumi, Paul, because it's, you know, every time I read Rumi, I go back to my ancestors. It's almost like living through a dream poetry, mm. a, a dance, if you will. And, you know, being around athletes my entire life, being around, you know, the collective that's always asking me about health and nutrition and wellness, I've been leaning towards sleep as being one of the number one ways and probably more important than anything as far as regeneration. It and is the most powerful medicine there is. But as you know, a lot of people today are not sleeping because of the stress, because of bad diet because of medicating themselves with alcohol and chips and garbage food. So a lot of people really need a, a high quality, natural, healthy, wholesome, nutritious sleep product, which is why I'm so excited about Rumi. Yeah. Instead of using antihistamines and pharmaceutical drugs and other ways to cope with lack of sleep, we wanted to hit it right where the Ayurvedic medicine knew where to take it. Right. And that's giving you with nourishing herbs like ashwagandha and lemon balm and passion flower. We also have cannabinoids in there and we have other minerals in there that make it such a beautiful sleep tonic and you can integrate the process with a smooth transition. Sleep for me is everything and Rumi has lived up to all of its uh, expectations and it's one of our most requested formulas right now. So there you go. Super nutrition while you sleep. It doesn't get better than that. All you've got to do is go to Symbiotica, C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com, and on checkout, use your magical code, capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 15, that's check 15, to get your discount, 15% on Rumi and anything else. So check out their other amazing products. I have not ever used any Symbiotica product that I didn't love and didn't work super well, or I wouldn't be telling you about it. This stuff's in my refrigerator right now, and it will be a great addition to yours. Enjoy. And a little warning. Oh, here comes <laughs> a, more. A little warning. It's extremely delicious. And so, you know, you might find yourself sleeping, you know, the rest of your life. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. So there you go. How about that? A medicine that's extremely delicious. A so, dream within a dream. A dream within a dream. And all you got to do is go to symbiotica.com and use your code CHECK15 on checkout, all caps. Enjoy. Now, here's one thing I want to have a, a discussion and a little debate on if we can, because I would love to have different views on this one. I once did a video a while back about love is not the highest spiritual value. And the reason why I was saying that one is if I look at the parts of the brain, love coming from the limbic system and the neurotransmitters produced by the limbic system, then on top of that, we've got the neocortex, which organizes and reframes information which then gets us to the prefrontal cortex, which has the ability to override the emotions generated by the limbic system, including love, 
but it also gives us that ability to understand causality. It gives us an ability to give meaning and purpose to the things and the events in our life, and which makes me wonder if love is not the highest value, the spiritual value, then the things that come from the prefrontal cortex, such as awe and wonder, such as flow states and all of these other things that are attributed with a higher mind, I'm wondering if those might even be more of a reflection of a higher state of being rather than love. Well, what I would say in my model is that you're distinguishing human love from love as a principle. So when I use the word love, I define love one of my, I have two definitions for love, which I'll share. One is love is the flow of energy and information through empathic and compassionate connection to self and or other. And the other can be a sentient being, a tree, a possession, a car. So love is the flow of energy and information. If God or source is conscious then love is the flow of energy and information through empathic to feel or compassionate to understand connection to self, that which is generating the love or has self-awareness or other, which could be any other thing. So what I'm defining there is a combination. It's like a double bottom meaning. It means love is the flow of energy and information between any two sentient points or conscious points in the universe. But human beings have this tendency to think they're the only ones that are conscious, but you can quickly find out that that's not true at all. <laughs> any shaman can tell you that. So then I have another definition, which is love is consciousness, i.e. all caps, not personal consciousness, but source consciousness becoming aware of itself, which is what I believe the universe is, which is why scientists like Fred Hoyle have shown mathematically and very factually that the universe is a self-sentient, self-observing uh, body, if you will, or being, if you will. So in my model, love is actually a word that describes the two forces of creation so L in my model stands for life, but we have to have the desire to live. Any person or even animal that loses its desire to live will simply begin to die or commit suicide. So for example, if you cage an animal, a lot of animals, if they don't get enough connection or they're too separate from their loved ones, will die. Birds, for example, that lose their partner that are uh, birds that, that mate will often die. We see lots of human beings when their, uh, when their spouse dies, especially if they're elderly, lose their will to live and they just die because they just don't want to face life alone without their partner. So O stands for zero, pure potential. VE is the scientific notation for volt electron, which in my model represents will. So on the left side with love, you have L, which is positively charged because electromagnetically positive is a drawing force. It draws things towards it. O is what it's drawing it from, pure potential, the absolute, God, all possibilities that can be conceived of by any mind. 
And VE is the action principle or will. So in my model, love is actually the motive force by which consciousness experiences itself, which would be the foundation for self-consciousness and therefore I love you or acts of love. And so the distinction I'm making is I see love more as a principle of existence or nature And what I perceive from your description with the brain segments is more of love as it is channeled through a human being within its context and perception of what is or isn't loving. Interesting. I definitely like your model. I like the way it's presented. And I can agree absolutely with the, the flow of information. I just never thought to put the word love with that association. In fact, what you're describing with L-O-V-E makes me almost think of the alchemical terms of sulfur, salt, and mercury, where mercury is that transition from the life into spirit. So I'm seeing that in the alchemical terms. And I would have never thought to put love with that. So I'm going to have to ponder and sit with that for a while. And part of me almost wants to say, shouldn't we be using a higher term or a better term? Because love I don't know. That's just my perception. And that's just me is love might not be the right word to describe it, but it might be just good enough for now until we find a better word for it. Well, the one thing I can understand that, but when I look at what love is from the perspective of relationships between the sentient beings we're aware of, we know that animals love. We know that insects love. We know that humans love. And we know that without love, life is in the greatest jeopardy. Any parent that does not love their children is setting their child up to either be a psychopath or commit suicide or to have a lot of problems in life. So to me, love really represents both the flow of energy and information and the most primal bonding force there is. In my model, love is what makes an atom stay together and not fly apart and just become uh, subatomic particles that flash out of existence. So when I, when I look at, at what we know from science, basically everything in the known universe can be boiled down to two things, energy and information. So pure potential is the potential for energy within which information is seeded or embedded in what Bohm would call the implicate order. And so what I'm really seeing in my conception is that love is actually the force of attraction that is created when the mind of consciousness itself looks into itself, because only when consciousness looks into itself is there a duality which is necessary for mind, because if you don't have a subject-object relationship, you cannot have any contents in consciousness. You can only have pure awareness, but pure awareness, if you have ever entered into a non-dual state, you don't know if you're alive or dead. You don't even know you're there. So you can really actually only describe union with God on your way in and on your way out because to be one with God, you have to fully extinguish the the self-sentient perspective of the ego or you're always actually separating yourself from God because you're looking at something like I can't see itself and teeth don't eat themselves. A camera can't see its own insides. It can only see outside of itself. 
So when consciousness, because God has nowhere to look but inside, by definition, God is that for which there is no other. Lao Tzu says, speaking of the Tao, all things have their back to the mother, which means there's nothing to look at behind God. So everything's looking inside. So imagine an infinite sphere where all beings are looking in because that's where the action is. So when any when God as consciousness looks into itself with the metaphor of what am I, then God sees any potential and that potential immediately creates an object of affection. Therefore, any point within itself that God directs its consciousness now sets up a duality which produces mind, which produces relationship, which produces love. Love is the name of the relationship that happens when subject identifies object. And because there's nothing but God to look at, and because we know love is the most potent bonding force we could have ever identified, it would be natural to assume that if love is the most potent bonding force for even the most conscious of human beings that have ever walked the planet, and all the mystics all say almost unanimously that God is love, then we must conclude that when God looks into God, there's a flow of energy and information through empathic feeling itself and compassion at seeking to understand itself, connection to self, which produces the illusion of other. So I'm looking at love from the perspective of the, as the vehicle of conscious experience through which not only we, but consciousness itself becomes aware of what it is. It's fascinating. I'm processing like crazy. Everything you're saying translating that and interpreting it the best that I can understand. And it definitely is giving me stuff to ponder because none of this stuff shows up that way in the Norse tradition, because in the Norse tradition, the universal bonding force, and so to speak, would be they're a very fatalistic system. It's a causality of cause and effect that bind things together. And from one step becomes the next step to the next step. Then it's like a, an ever-growing spiral step by step and word by word, deed by deed leads on to words and deeds. And that in a sense in the Norse tradition is the binding force. So it, it fascinates me to hear it this way because I, I love learning new things and I love challenging the way I think and perceive the world because it's how I grow. And it's one of the things that really blows people's minds is how I embrace cognitive dissonance because it helps my mind to grow. So I love your dissertation on what love is as a binding force at the even at the subatomic level to the life level and I, that, that's great thank you well thank you i mean I, I i have the same model of learning that you do i think that's probably one of the reasons i was so attracted to you when i saw you because i thought it was like okay here's a man that has healed himself enough to be an honest learner and an honest lover and it's very apparent in your in your energy field and so one thing that came to my mind while you were talking there is that Einstein said something quite profound. He said, the field is the sole governing agency of the particle. So you have to ask yourself, what is the field that's governing the particles and how big is it? 
I totally agree with that. I, I love field theory too. I, I really like the different kind of fields that are out there. And I, I see those as like the mental field, the Higgs field, the all of that and how they actually energize the subtle bodies of our being because they're all connected to the different vibration levels of the field. But my point, if we go back to the ocean and the eddy, every field, the Higgs field, no matter what field it is, is existent within a larger field. And the ultimate field is a sphere whose circumference is everywhere, whose uh, is nowhere and center is everywhere, which means the field is consciousness itself. And the particle is the act of God looking into a potential and the flow of information and energy creates manifestation. Ooh, this is where I go into my understanding of this. This is outside of the lore, outside of the Norse stuff. This is the stuff working with the whisperers and the way that they've taught me things. What you're describing as the field, and I agree with that, that's a great word for it, they describe as darkness. Darkness is like the space between stars. It is the realm where the beings there are nothing but pure consciousness. They don't have matter. They don't have a form. They are just pure commingled consciousness. And as the darkness condenses, it becomes the subtle energy that we can perceive as the spiritual. And that spiritual energy is what condenses even more to become the electromagnetic fields that we see, the light that we see, which then condenses even further into the matter and form and becomes that particle that emanates out of the darkness, you know, the particle that comes out of the field. And so, yeah, we're definitely agreeing that even that particle is actually consciousness that is condensed into this really kind of compact form. And therefore, it is still conscious. It's still aware because it's still part of that field that the whispers have me calling it darkness. So two points come up. You see, all of this is dependent upon the flow of energy and information. And even an angel is a flow of energy and information. In fact, have you ever seen or read the book, The Physics of Angels by Rupert Sheldrake and Matthew Fox? I haven't. It's an excellent book. Uh, it's called The Physics of Angels by Rupert Sheldrake and Matthew Fox, both of which are geniuses. And so when we're talking about a being, be it an angel or otherwise, a jinn, a being, a nature spirit, those are all beings that are interacting with us consciously or we wouldn't know it. And they're also beings that appear to us to be somehow separate from us like me and you appear to be separate right now, which means for those beings to be in existence, consciousness must already be in relationship to them for the same reasons we couldn't have atoms if consciousness was not condensing concentrate con condensing itself into some kind of an atomic structure or geometrical structure or form. Now, the second point is, have you studied Walter Russell at all? I haven't. Okay, Walter Russell is mind-boggling. Um, he only had a fourth-grade education, but he had a period where he went into a full-blown union with the universe for 49 days straight. And when he came out, he was capable of wild and interesting things, and it's well-documented. And I've studied his one-year study course, and I've got all his books. But Walter Russell and many other mystics say God is 
not the light we think of as light. God is not dark. God is a translucent light that has basically, to our perception, no polarity. In other words, dark would be a negative polarity, light would be a positive polarity, relatively speaking. And the created world is dependent upon light and dark as the two foundation energies from which we create, which you could correlate dark to yin, light to yang. But many mystics, and Walter Russell himself said, God is actually a translucent light that cannot be perceived by the senses. It can only be perceived by clairvoyant senses or or higher senses. And he shows waveform diagrams that basically indicate that when the sine wave crosses the line, remember when a person dies, we say they flatline. There is no more life force moving through them. There is no cycles at any level that we can measure But what Walter Russell's implying is that when the sine wave crosses the line, at that moment, it's everywhere and nowhere simultaneously, and that's what produces the translucent light, and that's what I call the field. The field is the point that is not polarized and by definition is everywhere and nowhere at the same time. And Itzhak Bentov says in his most amazing book, Stalking the Wild Pendulum, that when you're swinging a pendulum at the exact moment that it stops swinging in one direction right before it goes to the other direction scientifically and mathematically it's everywhere and nowhere in the universe at the same time for that one instant and it would be at that point that it would be one with what Walter Russell calls the translucent light because his mathematical diagrams and sine wave diagrams are actually he even uses he even takes the swing of a pendulum and breaks it up into a sine wave to say almost exactly what Itzhak Bentov said I love that because what it makes me think of is ecstatic states of consciousness in liminal space meaning that you're you're conscious but you're in a space that's so expanded that it's not um tangible with coordinates yeah, liminal space is like a ritual chamber where you have one foot in the spiritual world and one foot in the physical world. It's a great place to commune with the entities. And then when you get into that ecstatic state, be it with entheogens or on your own endogenous working, you can reach that higher state. But because you're in between worlds and then you are raising your consciousness above the line through the ecstatic experience, the only way I can describe it is just exactly how you did. It's like you're everywhere and nowhere at the same time when you're doing that kind of work. Yes, uh, and I I agree. And I've I've entered into these states doing Tai Chi is is what's got me there more than anything other than um, very high doses of plant medicines such as DMT. Um, <laughs> you get enough DNT in you and you will be in that liminal space for a while. I'll tell you that. But uh, I, I get um, there using like some Qigong type breathing with some Galder work and which is singing the runes, just getting there and combining all of that into a higher energy state. And I lose track of what exists. You know, it's basically taking the microcosmic orbit into, I don't know, macrocosmic orbit, but using runes to get there. Well, ultimately, what you're doing is following the law of sympathetic resonance. 
if you if you bring yourself in one of two directions, if you bring yourself to a, a total standstill, then you're like that pendulum at the end of a swing. Or if you raise your vibration high enough, then it loops back on itself like a Mobius strip and you're everywhere at the same time. Isn't this stuff fun? <laughs> it, well, the thing is, you know, it's not just fun, but it does take the shackles off. Doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, when you realize, I mean, I'm only doing my best to describe experiences that I have. And this is why I study so much because I want to under, I need to, whenever I have profound experiences through shamanic practices or Tai Chi or uh, any mechanism, my first thought is anybody else experienced this. And I've been absolutely amazed. I will ask my soul, is there a book in my library that would describe the experience that we just had together? The answer is almost always yes, because I have quite a comprehensive library. And I will go in there and lo and behold, there Walter, Walter Russell will describe it or Rumi will describe it poetically so beautifully. It just blows my, <laughs> blows my mind. It's like, oh my God, you know? Um, and I find that the mystics are frequently describing these types of things. But the problem is, is that most people are so trapped in their left mind and so trapped in belief systems, they can read the same thing as people like you and I and get a completely and utterly different interpretation out of it. It's very true. Absolutely agree. Which is one of God's favorite tricks, I think. Because I tell people, look, God has all the time that'll ever exist God's not in any hurry for you to be enlightened. You have to truly, utterly want enlightenment and be ready for it. And it comes at a cost because people do not like free people. Osho said the most dangerous thing you'll ever experience in your life is freedom. And we know for a fact that most mystics uh, find their way out of this existence by getting maimed, tortured, or crucified because people that are programmed with brainwashing, which the Catholic church had perfected in the eighth century AD and has been mastering it ever since, do not like people that have more freedom and enjoy sex more than them or have anything that they don't get to have because they're caught being good little boys and girls for an imaginary daddy in the sky. And then they justify that by turning you into an object and getting rid of you, which we still see people like Donald Trump doing and all sorts of this. I mean, the whole we could get on a whole side ta uh, uh, side segue here on, on how objectifying people is still alive and well, but it really boils down to belief systems, closed minds, and not asking the bigger question, how did the colored people get here? How did the white people get here? How did Hitler get here? How did we all get here? How did Bill Gates get here? How do, we're all basically earth, water, fire, air, and space, and consciousness. So ideas like racism or trying to control people's religious beliefs or whatever, that's really just a complete misunderstanding of the freedom of God consciousness itself. And since God loves a good show, God says, well, let's rock and roll. Give it your best. <laughs> and that's exactly the philosophy that I have, which kind of gets me in trouble sometimes is because the stuff that I have to teach, like I said, I will teach it to anybody who is willing to learn it and has an honest approach to it. 
when it comes to the Norse community, there are, you know, the left wing and the right wing throughout there. And personally, I don't care. If you really want to come to learn what I have to teach, I don't care where you sit on the political spectrum because I have seen when people get in touch with their own higher being, when they let go of that egoic self, when they finally can let go of those beliefs that they grew up with to embrace something that's different and better and higher, they let go of those old toxic traits of who they thought they were. They no longer need them. They no longer hold on to them. And I think that is in every way beautiful. So I don't care where somebody fits on the political spectrum or any of that kind of stuff. Come, you're welcome to learn what I have to teach. And unfortunately, that means some people were uncomfortable with other people being around. And I'm just like, that's part of the growth process. Let's try to coexist here. Let's do the healing that we need to do so we can get to that better place together. Absolutely. Are you familiar with the uh, famous spiritual teacher, Kabir? Uh, yes, I've looked into a little bit of his stuff. I love Kabir, but Kabir was caught in a very interesting predicament because one of his, I think his mother was a Muslim and his father was a Hindu. So he being from India was constantly being attacked for being not Hindu or for being not being Muslim. And Kabir became a very enlightened man. I won't take the time to tell the whole story about it, but Kabir absolutely refused to follow the Indian caste system. He did not, he would let the, the, the untouchables and the Brahmins come sit in his classes together, which caused a lot of stress amongst the Brahmins. And it ultimately got so bad that a bunch of, a bunch of the, the higher ups, the Brahmins uh, devised a plan to have him killed. And I'd like to share it with you just because I think it would be fun for you and the listeners to hear if you're not familiar with the story. But basically what happened was the Brahmins said, okay, we've got to figure out how to get rid of them. So what they did is they, and I'm paraphrasing, it's been a number of years since I read it, but they got a soldier to take a trained war elephant and they followed Kabir around to see what his roots were and they got him they decided where they would do this and they got this war elephant. They brought it to Kabir and the uh, elephant, con uh, the guy that controlled the war elephant uh, uh, commanded it to attack Kabir and it would not move. It sat down and would not move. And Kabir just stood there and looked at it. And the guy literally beat the elephant almost to death trying to get it to, att to attack Kabir. This is a highly trained war animal that just crushes people like grapes on command. It would not move. So the guy f finally gave up and Kabir just smiled and walked away. So they, first of all, they were very perplexed as to how that could possibly happen because they'd never had a case like that before. So the next thing they did was they said, okay, we have to come up with another plan. So they realized that when he walked home at night, he often crossed this big bridge that went over a, a really uh, powerful river with a lot of rapids and things. And they said, okay, well, let's capture him, chain his arms and legs together behind his back and throw him off the bridge. So that's exactly what they did. Well, about 400 meters down the river, Kabir popped out, had no chains on, walked away and didn't even phase him. <laughs> so that... That really frustrated them. So they said, okay, we're going to have to figure out something he cannot escape from. 
So they figured the only way to really do it was to take him to the funeral grounds and light the funeral pyres on fire for cremation. So they captured him and they threw him into a raging funeral fire, which is, you know, a huge bonfire that would, (laughs) you're not going to get out of that. And one or two seconds later, Kabir walked out completely untouched and he was wearing white clothing and it had no sign of soot or dirt on it whatsoever. And they finally realized he was a true saint and they better just leave him alone. (laughs) (laughs) For a little bit there, it almost reminded me of the the story of the death of Rasputin. (laughs) I'm not familiar with that. Oh, it's a very similar kind of thing, but not quite the same at all. Rasputin was an advisor to the last king of Russia. Of course, the name of them is escaping my mind right now. And he was very ambitious. He was thought by a lot of the other Russian leaders that he was manipulating the royal family and that they had to do away with him. He has a very interesting take on Christianity because he was very libertine throughout his approach in life. You know, he knew hypnotism. He knew a lot of the higher level spiritual healing techniques. And a lot of people say that his healing and his spiritual practices really worked really well. But the other leaders of Russia just did not like this guy because they felt he was too ambitious. He was stealing their women. He wasn't playing by the rules that they had for him. And so they tried all of these different methods to kill him and none of it worked until finally the last one did and they were able to get rid of Rasputin. But his interesting take on Christianity is that if God and Jesus love you so much that they're willing to forgive you for your sins and that Jesus died for your sins, then the truly one, the ones who truly benefit from Christ's love and get the most out of the sacrifice that Jesus made is from those who sin the most in life. <laughs> that seems logical. <laughs> That's so, a good left brain interpretation. So Rasputin, let's say, is the anti-Kabir. In that essence. Right. <laughs> well, as uh, Carl Jung says, when the Christian church created Jesus Christ, he cast a light so bright they had to create Satan to counterbalance him. I was just going to say, Jung also says, for a tree to grow to heaven, it must have roots that go grow to hell. Why? Because God's a zero force. God's unconditional. Therefore, No matter the taller you build a building, the deeper the foundation has to be. The richer you are, the more you feel the loss when you lose it. What goes up must come down. Yeah, Alistair Crowley wrote something similar to that in one of my favorite ones that he wrote. I'm not going to be able to quote it accurately, but it's uh, Liber Zadi, Velhermeticus, I believe it is, where he talks about the ones that it's like from the point of view of a higher being that the people that are most sacred to him are those who have their heads above the heavens and their feet below the hells because they are basically in both worlds and they are that zero sum of those extremities. I believe that. And the reality of it is, is that, you know, what is hell, but, um, diminished consciousness and what is heaven, but, consciousness of higher truths and connectedness and wholeness and the awareness of the unity of all things. 
Exactly. And that's why I teach balance in a completely different way than a lot of other people teach balance, because I see a lot of the new age teachers, a lot of the spiritual teachers teaching balance in a way that it almost seems like a negation of any extremity so that a person is zeroed out into nothingness. And I try to teach balance as find out what your extremes are, what what are your unique extremes for you and live both of those to the extent of it so that you're fully balanced, fully energized and completely passionate and emblazoned with your own authentic energy of who you are by exacerbating your own extremities. Yeah, I I teach a concept I call dynamic balance, which means I take a person, I say, okay, you're a father. Let's look at the father archetype. What are the excessive things that you can do as a father? So the positive polarity, the excessive. You can be over-loving, you can be over-controlling, you can be overly aggressive, and the list could go on. I have each person write down their own perceived tendencies or potentials. What are the negative polarities of the father archetype? To be indifferent, to be violent, to be disrespectful, to be unsupportive, to not connect to your own family or your children, etc. So I say that's like the middle of the line in the road and the ditch. If you cross the middle of the line, you're in head-on traffic, bad things are going to happen. If you're driving in the ditch, nothing good's going to happen. So once you're aware of your negative and your positive tendencies, know that life exists in the middle. And nobody can sit right in the middle and live because that's a static existence. There's no life there. So I say it's up to each of us to define what our values are because our values determine how we are going to navigate that road called life and know that there is a certain degree of negative and a certain degree of positive necessary for life to go, but how far you can take it to either extreme before you actually start denigrating yourself and therefore deteriorating your capacity to participate in relationships with self or other until you realize that you don't really know how, nor do you have a structure or a concept with within which to live a dynamically balanced life because you get a lot of these gurus talking about balance and you you get into all sorts of asceticism and abstinence from sex. And so it just becomes another, what I call mental game of mental masturbation. And, 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 and as Buddha said, after seven years of extreme yoga, it's just another game and he gave up and then he became enlightened. (laughs) That's right. It's almost like one of the things I tell people is that there's a wide berth between hubris and humility, find a comfortable place in between. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, if you're if you're not authentically living your unique potentials and expressions of yourself then you just homogenize yourself into being like everybody else and that that really is a waste of the uniqueness because none of us is ever going to be duplicated there'll never be another set of fingerprints like Kedrich Olson's anywhere in the universe again god is a novelty generator your soul which is in my model, consciousness within will transmigrate to different expressions of itself, but it's not going to show up as Kedrich Olson in the next life. That's already been done. Once you put a, 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 you know, I'm an artist. So once I 
once I lay that brush to the canvas, the change is made. Now I lay the next stroke. So the art of God doesn't require that God tries to keep doing the same piece of art again. That's boring. You can use a camera to do that. So I really feel that just like you're describing that life is meant to be lived and 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 we never really know where our middle is till we find our extremes. And I think that's what, you know, the first 35 or 40 years of most people's life is about is really finding the edges of yourself and deciding where is the dynamic balance that allows you to live and love fully, but not destroy yourself and others in the process. You know, one of my favorite movies is Harold and Maude. And there's a scene when Harold and Maude are sitting in a daisy field. And Maude is, she's an older woman. She's in her 80s. And Harold is a teenager. And they actually have kind of a a love affair together. But they're in this daisy field together. And she's like, look at it. Isn't it beautiful? And he's like, why? They're all the same. They're exactly the same. And she's like, no. I think one of the biggest sources of sorrow in this world is everybody thinks that they're this. And she waves her hand to all of the daisies standing around when they're really this. And she picks up an individual one. Then the camera zooms out from this daisy field of white on green, white flowers on the green stems and fades into a military graveyard with white gravestones and the perfectly tailored grass. And it was just that one scene is like, oh, geez. It's true. It's beautiful. Kedrich, great conversation, man. I'm digging this. It's, I was just telling my wife, uh, Penny, on the break here. Um, it's so nice for me to be able to talk to somebody that I can talk to at my own level where I don't have to kind of soften things down and, and try to, you know, create pablum out of, you know, the real conscious material that moves through me. So thank you for giving me a space to really share. And I'm hoping that we're inspiring deep contemplative meditations in, in many listeners. <laughs> thank you, too. It's really a joy to find somebody that we can speak at the same level and connect on these things in this way. It's, it's a rare treat. I'm really enjoying this very much. And I agree. I'm hoping that this opens minds and gets the psyche open to the depths so that this information is taken in and integrated in the best possible way for everybody listening. You know, which brings a comment up, you know, when you realize if God is unconditional love, then we're all creating our own limitations by choice. And ultimately it's up to each of us to decide what kind of life we want to live, what kind of clothes we want to wear, how many wives we want to have, what kind of sex we want to have. I feel as long as we're not stopping others and, and we're not harming others, then that's what it means to truly live. And so many people are in so much pain because they're doing what everybody else is telling them to do. Even when it goes against their own well-being like taking drugs instead of eating real food or having surgery instead of learning to breathe and and uh, sleep at night so your body can regenerate itself or getting caught in religious I- ideas that tell you god's going to burn you in hell for sinning which is is like well if you understand what the word god means that means god's burning itself in hell which does not make for a very intelligent god and all you got to do is look at the sky at night and say would a god like that be able to create universes i doubt it exactly and it's 
interesting what you're describing too is one of the things I love that Alistair Crowley wrote. I know he gets kind of a bad rap. And I've often said that the people who read about Crowley are afraid of Crowley, but the people who actually read what Crowley had to write go back and say, uh, what was the big deal? What's the problem here? And he gets in trouble for his uh, saying is that do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love under uh, love is a law, love under will. And people get really thrown off. Do what thou wilt is the whole of the law. You mean you can go free willy doing whatever to whomever, however, how are people getting hurt? And he actually had to back up and write a little treatise uh, explaining what will is. And that if we talk about will with a capital W, it is your true purpose in existence. It is the reason why you are here in the world. And, you know, he says for pure will, unassuaged of purpose, delivered from the lust of result is in every way perfect. And he goes on to explain that if you are living your true will, the true identity of who you are, your life is beautiful. Things are wonderful. Things just seem to like magically work out for you. And you have no way of harming or hurting another person because that's not how will works. It isn't about going free will and hurting anything. It's about identifying who you are at the authentic core of your being and living that to the fullest extent. And if you grow up in a society that says one man, one woman, no, not at all anything else. And you're like, uh, no, I'm happy with multiple partners and that feels right for me. And it's just spreading more love into the world. Then that's your pure will. That's your true will. And in every way that is perfect. It is. And here's, here's another truth that a lot of people just haven't wrapped their head around. And I have empathy for them. And that is that the more, awake you become to what's really going on in life or in the universe or in consciousness, the more you realize that everybody and everything you're looking at is you. Therefore, the more love you have in you, the more you live your life, but the more aware you are that living your life without denigrating or damaging other people's lives is truly living. And a moral is a code of conduct that is life affirmative. But most of what people practice in modern corporate religion are ethics. And ethics are code of conduct, codes of conduct that may or may not be moral. So when you're burning people in hell or you're, you're uh, killing people because they practice a different religion and they're infidels or whatever you want to classify them as, you're basically torturing yourself. And it's oftentimes only when people have near-death experiences or uh, a good experience of, of their, their shadow and their unconscious on a psychedelic drug that they come to the deeper realizations of truths that go beyond what's written on paper. And this is exactly why Rumi said, no man can get to God until he becomes a heretic. And what he was describing is you can't <laughs> become enlightened by re reading papers, uh, books written by other people. That's their experience. It's not your experience. So you're basically succumbing to somebody else's idea of truth without ever finding it yourself, which puts you squarely in the position of a child. And that's exactly why Osho said the Abrahamic religions are religions for children and the Eastern religions are religions for adults because in the Eastern religions, you are the one that's responsible for what you create. You are the one that has to deal with the consequences of your own creations. You don't just act like an idiot and say, God, forgive me, 
Jesus, forgive me. And, you know, as the old saying goes, people go to church on Sunday and then act like they were never there for the other six days of the week. And, and, you know, I really, I know from my own experience and I've worked with a lot of people that came to me very, very caught in dogmatic religious viewpoints and were very sick and unhealthy. And within one to three years of coaching, I've watched people open so much that they begin having their own enlightenment experiences and truly living and loving, free themselves of diseases, become honest in their relationships, whether that means ending a job, ending a marriage because they know that their soul contract with that person is over, but they create freedom for themselves and freedom for other people by being true and being authentic to themselves. And ultimately, I think that's really what life is for. If you, if life is for anything, it's the realization of who and what you are and what you are is total freedom. And it takes limitation to become conscious because total freedom has no boundaries. So there can be no subject object relationship until we work with the illusion of limitation. And so oftentimes we have to start with the limitations imposed upon us at the child level of consciousness so we can survive long enough to mature and grow spiritually to be able to be safe in the physical domain and then realize that the physical domain is a limiting domain that allows us to look out at everything else and then begin to ask bigger and bigger questions until we realize that the ultimate subject is subject itself. Yep. It's why I'm often found saying that the goal of the work that I'm trying to teach people is liberation, not salvation. Well, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, that's, that, that's true. It's very, it's very true. And, and, and these are deep truths that, that, and, you know, here's the thing you, you, you made me think of something earlier, but I didn't want to interrupt you. You know, Yes, you can live a life that's very, very much magical and, and things manifest and there's a sense of ease, but there's always challenges because challenges are part of the creative process. Every, every artist has to figure out how to make water look clear, but still be visible or how to mix paints or how to create texture Every dancer has to figure out how to get an extra spin in or get more lofty or create the illusion like Brishnikov did of flying further and further distances, which later through through kinesthetic analysis or high-speed film video, they were able to show that the way he did it was as his body was falling, he was raising his legs up higher. So it created an optical illusion that made it look like he was jumping these tremendous distances and going way up in the air, but he was actually creating an optical illusion. But he had to figure out how to do that to create the necessary illusion to inspire any onlooker to say, wow, that's amazing. Just like Michael Jackson doing the moonwalk was so fascinating and it made millions of kids spend the time to take the challenge to try to figure it out. So what I'm saying is that when we mature, we come to the realization that all so-called resistance in our life is actually a catalyst for growth and transformation. And instead of meeting the resistance with resistance and you know throwing a tantrum or drugging yourself or 
getting angry and 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 or being self-defeated and and becoming a victim you get to the point where you realize this is my opportunity to become more aware, to become more creative, to become more whole, to develop new relationships with the kinds of people that have solved this problem before me. And so what we see is that God's always reaching out to help God become aware of what God is. You know, that's, that's what I've learned, at least. What's the Norse conception of consciousness or definition? You know, it doesn't really have one. There is no necessary distinction in the literature and in the language that I'm aware of. And I, I will fully disclaim that I am not a super expert in the Old Norse language. You know, there are people with PhDs that do a much better job of it than I do. But when I get to the literature and I'll break out the translation dictionaries and I'll look at other people's translations and then I'll stumble and bash my way through my own translation. And I've paid very close attention to try to figure out exactly that. What did the Norse think of the consciousness and how we experience it? And there is not a real clear definition of it. In fact, there are multiple definitions for mind, for spirit, and for the different approaches that we take that we can take for that one. But there's nothing really clear for consciousness. Now, I wonder if it was because they didn't have the capability back then with their level of spiritual growth and their understanding to be aware of it, or if they just didn't have the means of writing it down, or if they did write it down and teach it, that it's just something that hasn't survived through the ages as consciousness, something separate from the mind or spirit. It's just not in the lore in that way. Yeah, that's all right. It's interesting. I was just curious. Um, what ha, What's the Norse conception of the self versus the ego? This one they are actually very clear about. In the literature, there are a few different places where we find the phrase Schelfer, Schelfer mehr, or even Schelfer Leithu, Schelfen Thiek. And I'll translate these for you. In the Havamal, one of the poems about what Odin is describing, some of the morals of life and the things that we need to learn for having a good life and the wisdom. Part of that poem is how he hung himself on the world tree, Yggdrasil, for nine nights, so that he was going through like an ecstatic shamanic ritual to discover the runes. And as part of this ritual, he sacrificed himself to himself, which is where we get that line, Schelfer, Schelfer, Mer. Mer is just like a reflexive. It means to, to me. Uh, but the fun part is when we talk the language, how it's Schelfer, Schelfum, they have different ways of saying the object versus a subject when it's a noun. And that's exactly what we're seeing here is an object of the sentence versus a subject of the, or yeah, you know what I mean? You're following me here, the, the different mm -hmm. parts of the sentence grammar. But this is also the higher self to the lower self. This is what we find in the Vedic tradition of Atman versus Brahman, the sacred self internally versus the sacred self universally, and how this is describing that you are offering of your lower self to your higher self so that you become a sacred being living a sacred life. And in a further poem called the Groa Galder, which is the magic rune songs of Groa, who is a, a female, a woman who does magic, and she's doing some magic spells for her son, 
a part of one of the spells is Shilfer Lithu Shilfen Thik is may yourself lead the self. Again, it's that whole let your higher self lead your lower self, let you be in tune as a whole being. So the lore is very clear that you are willing to let your egoic self go to your higher self. And if remember what we talked about earlier, how some of the teachings in the Vedic, like in the Bhagavad Gita, match word for word what's in the Norse lore. This is exactly one of them. When Vishnu is talking to Arjuna about the different forms of sacrifice, that there's the lower form of sacrifice of inaction, which is meditation and contemplation and the ritual work. Then there's a higher form of sacrifice, which is the sacrifice of action, which is philanthropy, going out and helping other people and doing things for other people. Then he says, there is the highest form of sacrifice, which is the sacrifice of self to the self. It just was just like, whoa, Vishnu and Odin are saying the exact same thing with the almost exact same words. And so what this is really referring to is it is still, and I'm going to be careful here, it is still an egoic state, still meaning an identity of I am who I am, but it is who I think I am in this world is connected to the greater part of me of who I really authentically am at the highest spiritual cosmic, numinous level, and we merge together to live my life as a prayer to my own highest being. Okay, cool. Those, you're using uh, a conceptual structure that's uh, slightly different than I intended, but that's okay. You're using the self as what I would use or what Yogananda would use as a capital, or Jung would use more along the lines of a capital S-E-L-F. There's multiple distinctions in Jungian psychology. So how, oh, by the way, your your description of the man hanging himself sounds very much like tarot number 12, the hanged man. It is. They're one and the same. There you go. Um, so the, the, the self, as I meant it, would be the the formation of an individual from some sort of mystery the ego as i'm using it would be the person's program identity such as culture language customs uh and personal beliefs and biases or what is often referred to in science of mind as a self-plex or a collection of programmed ideas that creates an artificial intelligence that a person conceives of as themselves so the self would just be the manifestation of the individual. The ego would, would be what the illusion that the self navigates the world with. Um, so what you were describing really was the self versus the ego is more of like, almost like, well, higher self or soul versus the individual. Am I correct in what I was understanding? Yes. Yes, I, we're, we're totally there. And it doesn't have enough nuance in there to differentiate from the artificially constructed personality that we assume to live in the world that we were growing up in and the cultural identity that we, we tend to classify as ego. But these deeper teachings are almost suggestive of that you've already moved beyond that. Uh, it's not quite really stated in the lore. Again, a lot of the lore is not direct 
super deep teachings overtly, but it, it's implied as you go deeper into it and you really dig into the lore with a, a mystic mindset. So it doesn't quite reference ego in that way, but it does talk about the different kinds of self as a, a form of elevation. Now you describe the Vedas as, as saying that is saying Atman versus Brahman and Brahman versus Atman, but the Vedas actually say Atman is Brahman and Brahman is Atman. I should have said that. You are. I don't mean to say versus. I mean Atman is Brahman. Brahman is Atman. Correct. I didn't mean versus. Is is the correct term there? Cool. Uh, what's the Norse conception of mind, and how does that differentiate from the individual mind? And what do the Norse people believe um, and you believe that these things are? In other words, what's the Norse belief that, of what mind is and how do they define it? And what do they believe an individual's mind is and how would they define it? The word that is used here is huger, H-U-G-R. And it is a word that it can be synonymous with mind as well as synonymous with spirit or soul. And there's a lot of words that actually mean spirit or soul. And how this shows up in the lore is Odin has two ravens. One is named Hugin, the other is named Munin. And it talks about how his ravens fly over the nine worlds every day and report back to Odin the things that they see. And Odin fears that Hugin may fall but he fears even more that Munin may fall. But what these words translate to is Huger is what we can identify as the conscious mind or even the mental body. And Munin is a word for memory, and it deals with the subconscious mind and emotions. So they really classify mind in both the Huger and the mini, both the conscious mind and the subconscious mind, as the ability to be inside the head as something that you're thinking, you're feeling, you're experiencing, but as something that also can be removed from the body and fly over the worlds. And that also the Huger comes up in another interesting, two other places, this word that I find most fascinating, is there's a tale where Loki, one of the trickster gods, has to have an eating contest with a, one of the uh, one of these beings that goes by the name of Hugi. And they have to eat this entire trencher full of meat. Whoever can get to the center of the trencher first is the one who wins. And Loki just devours the meat like crazy. He's going, he finally gets to the center of the trencher. He's like, ha, I won. And all that's left is just a bunch of bones from the meat left all over the table and the plate. But then he looks over to the side of, ooh, and I totally messed this up. So, but I'm going to keep going. He looks over to the other side where it's actually, I'm sorry, Logie that he's in a competition with. And Logie actually eats it all. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Uh, Fialfi okay. is another but, person. But the, the dynamics are intact. Yes. As another contest in the same court with a giant, one of Logie's travel companions is Thialfi, who says he is the fastest runner. That nobody can run faster than he can. Thialfi is, is paired up with Hoogie. This time I got it right. Thialfi is paired up with Hoogie to have a running contest. And Thialfi believes he can absolutely outrace Hoogie, no problem, because Hoogie doesn't look like he's very fast, not a problem. But before Thialfi can even take one step, Hoogie has already made it to the finish line and back. And it turns out 
that the reason why this is, is Hugi is a personification of the mind, which is faster than any person can ever move. And so that goes right back to the ravens, how they can fly over all of the worlds in no time at all, because they are not bound by the limitations of time and space, as we understand. It tells us that the mind is actually something separate from the brain, that it exists as, for want of a better word, consciousness outside of the body, and it can go anywhere, at any time, any place, and can return back to the point of center or origin to report back and to communicate what it needs, which ties into a lot of other traditions saying that the brain is just a receptor for consciousness or mind. And in in essence, that's what's in the lore through these depictions, but never is overtly stated as such. I wish you could get some of these left brain scientific materialists to read some Norse lore. (laughs) (laughs) It would help them. I totally agree. How does how does the Norse tradition define spirit? Spirit. That comes to us in a few different ways. And one of my favorite words that is defined as spirit is a word called ond. It's O-N-D. And the O has a diuresis, the two little dots above it. It's got that umlaut shift. So it's ond. And ond is spirit. Ond also means breath. And it blows my mind how ond can mean spirit as the vital life force, or it's actually the subtle body that brings in the subtle life force, which is Lao, and how ond means spirit and breath, just like from our Latin roots of our language, like aspire and spirit also come from aspiration, from breath. They have the same root word of spirit and breath. So the Norse were very tuned in to breathing and spirit, how they are connected. And the word that is associated, if we think on is like the subtle body that breathes in energy, the energy that it breathes in is what they call Lao. It's just basically the prana or the chi that is breathed in by the soul or the the being that you are. And then it can be expressed through the other which is like the the electric body, and it is expressed as sound and intention as something called lighti. So it is lao that comes in through the ond with spirit, and it is expressed as sound and intention through the other as lighti. Neat. So is there a, a distinction in their culture between spirit and soul, or are they considered to be sort of reflections of each They're other sort of reflections of each other and again this takes uh, the mystical mindset piecing the little pieces and parts that are scattered throughout the norse word for soul believe it or not is soul it's spelled oh well that's easy <laughs> i know a norse word yay and it's spelled s a l and the l the a has a little accent mark over it so it's pronounced soul soul and it the soul can really be thought of as a complex. As we talked about earlier, the subtle bodies, and what we're mentioning, the huger is the mental body, the mini is the emotional body, the ond as the magnetic, the other as the electric. There's a part called the hammer, which is the etheric body, and the haminya, which is the causal body. And it is the overlap, it is the conglomeration of all of these subtle bodies and how the information and energy flows through all of those that distinguish the soul 
as a complex of all of the subtle bodies. It is the soul is this complex being that we are as a human being existing in the physical. You know, I've never said that we are a spiritual being in a physical form. I think we are spiritual and physical beings having a dynamic experience. And that's kind of how the Norse would say it is the the lick, which is the physical body, is a reflection of the hammer, which is the ethereal body, and they all coexist together, creating each other. And that's what the soul is. And interestingly enough, when you get down to it, matter is spirit because all of it are just derivations of consciousness, just like you can shine a clear light through a prism and get seven gradients of it as colors, the rainbow. If you say, okay, consciousness is the clear light, mind is the prism, then everything that we express, be it spirit, soul, subtle energy bodies, matter, we'll call matter red and we'll call pure spirit uh, ultraviolet as an example Everything is really an expression of the one just in gradations of vibration, frequency, and therefore uh, consciousness perceives things differently at different levels. Just like we perceive a rainbow as a, 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 a list of colors, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, blue indigo, violet, all of which are really, um, to use David Bohm's concept, um, implicate in light. It's it's uh it's 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 actually really impressive how deep they were. In some places, absolutely. Completely. And when it comes to vibration, this is one of the things that I really was hesitant on when I would do my own translations on because I'm just like I'm not sure that I'm getting it right. Because if I a lot of the scholars when they go through the Lord, they don't translate proper nouns. They just leave names of places and beings just as they are. They don't even bother to translate it. But as I was going through and I'm like, let me translate some of these names. I'm finding like references to water and vibration and sound throughout the lore, especially when it comes to the creation mythos and how we interact and the magic and all this. And I'm like, can this absolutely be right? And then a woman by the name of Maria Kavillag She's a Norwegian who really studies this intricately at the language level, and she too has a mystical awareness of the stuff, and she's put out a lot of work exemplifying all of the stuff that doesn't get translated, and she says too, throughout the lore, is that all of reality, all of our existence from the minutiae to the macroscopic, everything is just vibrations in a medium that is kind of like water, but it's not water. And so again, back to everything being consciousness that is condensed into matter and that it's all just levels of vibration, even that's embedded in the lore, but the scholars miss it because they don't think to translate it that way. It's maybe it's a little too woo woo for them or they don't quite get it or they're stuck on their left brain. I don't know, but it takes a certain mindset to get in to see how much vibration and sound is actually embedded in the deeper parts of the Norse tradition. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you study the Sufi tradition, they basically describe that everything in the manifest universe is the product of sound, even light. So in, in the Sufi tradition, sound is an all encompassing word that means every possible conception of vibration, which if we go back to Hinduism, 
Om, A-U-M underscore, means the sum total of all vibrations producing the sound of God or the sound of the universe. Ah, I awaken. Ooh, I'm dreaming. Mm, I'm falling asleep underscore, end of cycle. All gone, deep dreamless sleep, new show being dreamed up. And that's where we find another parallel with the Norse tradition. Again, in the Havamal, when Odin discovers the runes, there's a key phrase there that really gets glossed over by a lot of people. And I'll say it in Old Norse first, and then I'll translate it, where he talks about the runes, Gerthud Ginregen, Ochfadi Fimbulthuler. Gerthud Ginregen means we're shaped, we're formed by the Ginregen, which means the high holy rulers. There comes that Gin again that tells us that this is the existence before existence, the time before time. And Reagan is where we get like the word rain from. They are the rulers of this high holy existence before existence. And then Favi Fimbulthuler. Favi means to color, to stain, to paint. And Fimbulthuler, Fimble is a word that means great or supernatural, superpowered. And Thuler is an Old Norse occupation of a holy singer. It's a lot like the Jewish cantor. He would sing the holy songs. And so when the runes were shaped by these beings that existed in pure consciousness, but were given form or given color by sound, they were sung into existence. That tells us right there that everything is vibration. But what sound did they sing? We go back to the Norse inscriptions with the runes. And there is a very popular inscription found in a lot of magical formula, or sometimes it's on its own. And scholars will debate over what this word means. But the word is alu, A-L-U. Anzus, which makes up the A sound, is about consciousness and about awareness, about understanding. Lagus, which gives us the L sound, is water. It's letting things flow. It's the dream cycle. It's psychic ability. So it's that flow of energy, the flow of intention. Anzus being intention, Lagus being the flow of energy. And Urus is about strength and vitality, the primal essence of things. So it is your intention flowing into life, into existence. And it has that sound just like Aum, but it's now Alu which is the same sound that we find in the Jewish tradition of Alleluia. It's the same sounds everywhere. That's, isn't that just beautiful? Yes. I mean, this, see, this right here is an example of how dangerous a belief system is. Because if you get caught in a belief system that stops you from looking into other belief systems, then you don't realize that at the root of almost all the major belief systems in the world, we'll call them religions, for example, is the same message, but because each of the different cultures and religions has a slightly different nuance to it, it expands your own capacity to perceive things that you once thought of only in a specific way, but you go, wow, the Muslims see it this way. The Hindus see it this way. The Chinese see it this way. The Tibetans see it this way. And they're all saying the same thing. But each one of them adds a little color and a little more depth and a little more clarity, clarity to the others. And all of a sudden, what was maybe too rigid of a conception becomes much more liquid, much more porous, much more dynamic, but much more whole. 
Exactly. And that's why mystics get along together so well, no matter what tradition they are part of, because mystics see below the structures of religion to find the substrate of existence that all of these religions are built on. And they might use different words, but they can agree on the same exact concepts because they're looking at the mystical layer that all of the dogma is built on top of. Yes. There's an old saying, if you put 12 enlightened people at a round table with a multicolored bouquet of flowers in the middle of it and ask each of them what they're seeing, they will all describe something different. And the reason, the reason that's so important is because a lot of people have this false conception that everybody that are enlightened are seeing the same thing, that they know everything and that they can see through everything and all sorts of weird comic strip stuff. But the reality is somebody who's enlightened is aware that they're part of everything and everything that is, and they're aware of the importance of live and let live, and they're aware of the need for all of us to share, learn, live, and love and grow together. But somebody sitting at one side of the table might be seeing a yellow flower, and the guy on the other side could be seeing a black flower, and the other guy on the other end has no conception of a black flower until the other guy says, oh, by the way, there's a black flower over here. And all of a sudden, now he knows more about that bouquet of flowers than he ever would have from his own vantage point. And the true enlightenment is being wise enough to listen to the guy on the other side of the table instead of denying him. (laughs) That's why we all have to have an open mind with a healthy skepticism and listen to each other. Yes. Well, just because we've been going for a while and I've got a lot left in the outline, but that's cool because I got like five more podcasts we can do and I'm <laughs> totally digging it. You're, I, I found a, a swimming mate to jump into the cosmic ocean with. So thank you for being you. My God, I'm digging your company here. Thank you too. This is great. Yeah. Now in your book, Runes for Transformation, Using Ancient Symbols to Change Your Life, which by the way, Kedrich, That is a very beautifully written book. I have done a lot of study in my life and read a lot of books. I've written 11 books. And when I read your book, which I'm still working on, but I put several hours into it to get ready for this interview, you did a freaking good job of taking very complex subjects like Matt or spirit, reality, all the deep issues we're talking about and making it very clear and, and easy to read. So gold star, buddy. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It's very well written. I really highly recommend all of you get this book, Runes for Transformation, Using Ancient Symbols to Change Your Life by Kedrich Olson. That's K-A-E-D-R-I-C-H-O-L-S-E-N, which is the amazing man we're sharing time and space with right now. And one of the parts that I really loved, I thought, what a beautiful description of reality is when you talked about your distinctions of hard and soft reality. So let's close out with this question. What is reality in the Norse conception? That's a good question. Reality ultimately is the condensate of the consciousness, like we've been saying. And hard-coded versus soft-coded reality. Yeah, there is that commonly agreed upon stuff where we as the collective mind of humanity says, this is the way things are. Gravity works at 9.8 meters per second square, that two objects cannot occupy the exact same space, that 
solid matter can be influenced by force, inertia, you know, the whole Newtonian laws. That's fine. That's hard-coded reality. And until we can shift collective unconsciousness and the common agreement on what reality is, that stuff is hard-coded. You can't avoid it. And the reason why I make that distinction is because we tend to think of magic as this bibbity bobbity boop Harry Potter hocus pocus stuff that you just wave a magic wand and the rules and physics of our reality are suddenly changed. Never going to happen. You, as long as we're existing in this commonly agreed upon reality, you're not going to change that unless you make a shift in the soft coded reality, which could be almost thought of cause and effect, causality, fatalism, your perception of how the world works. Because if you change your mind and your perception of how things work, then all of a sudden the way things work changes. Some of this goes right back to the basic psychology of the reticular activating system. That if you can go into a ritual setting, or if you can do some of the work that I do in the book with runes to influence the way that your mind works, you become open to certain opportunities. And maybe you're in a public space and there's this advertisement on TV for something that you're thinking about. You would have never seen it before until you programmed your reticular activating system to see that particular thing. And now there's an opportunity that would have never existed before because you didn't alter the soft coded reality of your inner world. But the more you do your inner work, the more you change the coding of your inner world, the more the world around you changes. You're still going to have physical objects that are influenced by gravity and inertia and can't occupy the same space. However, the movement of those objects, the directions they're going, the meaning of the circumstances that you're in, and the outcomes of the things that you're seeing, all of that changes. And it's like you're now living in a completely different reality system. Life is totally different because the soft-coded reality got coded differently. And so that is, to me, the basis of really what magic is about. Is not the bibbidi-bobbidi-boop, I'm going to make something disobey the laws of physics. It's more about changing how things interact within those laws of physics so that you now exist in a completely different world than you did before because you altered the soft-coded reality that underlies your interaction and your perception of the world, of the hard-coded reality. So you're saying code as C-O-D-E, not C-O-A-T-E-D. Right. Yeah, it was just hard to tell because at first we were talking about the hard-coded, which relates to the issues of matter and causality. So I thought maybe you were actually using the word coded like matter, but you're you're saying coded like computer code, right? Exactly. So the hard code is like the operational system of a computer and the soft code is that which you can adjust, manipulate, and uh, transform. Perfect. That's exactly right. Well, be- because we're at the end and I, I just want to make sure that people get just a little bit more on your book. Can you just spend a minute or two describing what a rune is and how the book and the concept of runes can be used so that people may understand why they might want to buy the book and maybe even get a a set of runes? Absolutely. At the most basic level, a rune or the runes are the written form of the Proto-Norse languages. But every letter, every rune has a specific meaning to it. 
And it's relevant, of course, to the Old Norse people. And I'm going to give an example of this, and this is how I approach it in the book. If we take the rune Fehu, for example, Fehu once upon a time meant cattle. And the only people who had cattle were the rich farmers. Farmers were the pinnacle of the economic system in the Norse culture. So if you had cattle, you were rich. Eventually, Fehu became the word Fe, which eventually became Fee. So Fehu deals with value, with the exchange of value for value. And if you were to look at something in this room for, let's say, your computer, your computer has a monetary value, the price that you paid for it, or even the trade-in value, but your computer also has a personal value to you, like what you use it for, and the, the maybe even the sentimental value of it with the pictures and the information that you keep on there. So the values that that computer has is completely set different things from monetary to personal. But what about you? What is your fehu? What is your value? And I'm not meaning monetary value, of course. I mean, what are your certain set of values? How is it that you are valuable to the world? How is it that you are valuable to yourself? When you can identify that in words, you're using the huger, the conscious mind. When you can get a feeling of what your value is, that's your mini, that's your subconscious mind, the, the emotional body. And now when you approach the word fehu, fehu now becomes a representation of your personal value, of how you see yourself. And you have that ability, because we're talking soft-coded reality, to change that value. So when you want to have a different value for yourself, then write it out. What are those different values that you want to have? Let yourself feel it. And so every time you sing, fehu, fehu, that becomes a subconscious reference to the value that you're changing for yourself. We could take it a step further with a rune, Urus. Really quickly, it's a rune about strength and vitality, right? You can think of the strength of a table to hold up something. You can think of the strength of a bison, the vitality of a big buffalo and how strong and powerful they are. But look at you. What are your strengths? Not just physical strengths, but maybe that's it. But what are your emotional strengths? What are your mental strengths? What is your strength of spirit? That is represented by the rune Urus. If you want to change that, define what your new Urus is going to be. Let yourself feel it. Let yourself embody that. And when you sing Urus, let that become the embodiment through sound, through intention, through feeling of your new sense of strength. Now, when we come to putting runes together, this is called bind runes or rune scripts. You'll take urus for your strength, anzus for your ability to understand and communicate. And maybe you want to have a stronger ability to communicate. So you'll pair urus and anzus together to give you strong communication skills. Or maybe you want urus and fehu together to have strong value, that sort of thing. And so my book will take you through this process of what did the runes mean to the ancients? What does it mean in the modern times? And it invites you to explore what the runes mean to you. Then we take it deeper to create magical rune scripts and affirmations based off of those runes that you can use to change your own perception of yourself and the world around you. So everything begins to shift simply by thinking, feeling, embodying and intoning the runes. It seems to me that the runes are a combination of archetypes, symbols, and signs all at the same time. Signs, i.e. alphabets, where there's a 
common understanding. A sign is anything, as I'm sure you know, that we have a, a shared understanding of. Everybody knows that when you approach a stop sign, you step on the brake, not the gas. <laughs> and and just because of the shape of the stop sign, even if the letters have worn off the sign, we still know what it means because it's a sign. Whereas a symbol is something that connects you to a dimension beyond itself. So it's a doorway, a vortex, uh, or a, a dimensional key. And an archetype is an empty form that basically has an infinite capacity to fulfill itself. So the archetype of the father can be any derivation of the father. The archetype of the warrior can be any possible derivation on the warrior. The, arch the archetype itself has no attachment to how the warrior behaves, but it is, it is the expression of consciousness in the form of a warrior. Am I correct then that the runes can be archetypes, they can be symbols, and they can be signs? You're absolutely correct. In fact, I will refer to runes sometimes as psychological archetypes, enabling you to fill that archetype with your own personal expression of like what that value is, what that strength is. Exactly correct. And I'll even build up on some of the work of Jonathan Goldman, where he likes to say uh, intention with frequency equals manifestation. That's perfect for runes. Every rune is a symbol that has that intention built into it. It has a sound because it's got a phonetic value. And that intention and that symbol and that sound all work together with the heart, mind, the soul. Everything works together in unison to create the manifestation because of the runes are just, they work powerfully with your whole being. So it's really a beautiful way for a person to engage their subconscious, their unconscious, and even their higher self, depending on how they orient themselves to the runes, but it really becomes a language of transformation if a person's open to the guidance. And what I love about your book is, is that you give enough examples of each of these runes that runes that it's it's the a person can kind of get the concept. And then if they wanted to go further, they could hire somebody like you to say, okay, will you do a reading on me or I'm going to do a reading for myself, but I'd like you to interpret it for me. Um, so so it's, it seems to me like um, I love it because, you know, tarot, for example, has all this Christian baggage and religious baggage and people have said, oh, it's the work of the devil. And I say anybody that thinks tarot is the work of the devil is simply afraid to look into themselves. But uh because the rooms, runes come from a different culture and they don't have all the baggage attached to them, it seems to me like it's sort of a nice opportunity, a door opening for people that don't have anything in the way of it because it's sort of a new concept that it really becomes something that a lot more people could engage without any stigma attached to it. I completely agree. Not only is it stigma-free, but believe it or not, the runes are actually embedded into our psyche just because of the language we speak. Like I, I was mentioning that fehu became the word fee. The word yera for abundance and growth became our word year. The rune dagas, which is all about change from night into day, is our word day. A lot of the runes that the words that we use for runes are actually embedded into our conscious as English words that we use. The letters like B, S, T, C, I, R, 
they have the exact same phonetic value for the exact same letter shape because they're already in our language as a part of the words that we speak. So it's already embedded into our psyche to be able to use runes. Yeah, quite quite deeply because that's you know when when do you think the runes were uh, it, you know brought into use by by human beings? Uh, the first inscriptions, and of course scholars will debate over this, but it seems that the first inscriptions of runes were about 200 BCE. Oh my goodness! So they're you know as old as any of the hieroglyphs on the planet. Oh, they're they're not as old. They're not. Uh, oh, oh! You said two hundred. You didn't mean. Yeah, I was. My mind was thinking two hundred thousand years. But no. So two hundred, two hundred years before Christ, because you know we've we've got all sorts of. If you've ever watched Greg Braden's show, um, uh, what's it called? Um, Missing Links. Oh yes, yes. Yeah. So he shows all sorts of things that are way older than our history books can even account for, and. We've got cave paintings in France that are dated 35,000 BC and, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. So I, 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 sorry, I had a brain fart there, but still that's, that's, you know, over 2000 years ago and Sanskrit's what, 3,500 years old. Oh yeah. It's one of the oldest ones out there. And it ruins is a fairly young language compared to some of these, some of these. And there's a lot of people that really, and I'm one of them who think that runes actually stem from the old Etruscan language, because a lot of the letter shapes are the same. And we know that the Norse people would have had contact with the Etruscans about that same time period. So who were they? uh, They were another tribe of people that lived on mainland Europe. They were in conflict with the Romans. Eventually they were wiped out by the Romans, but we know that there was a tribe of Norsemen called the Aralas, the, the, Latin word for them were the Heruli. They're even mentioned in the Bible that they had direct interaction with the Etruscan people and they would have learned their language. And the Heruli, the Aralas, when they came back into Denmark and Sweden, brought this writing system with them. And it's the Aralas that actually became the word, eventually became rune master. So it's really strongly believed that this mercenary tribe of the Aralas were the people who learned writing from the Etruscan people and brought it home with them. And that's what became the runes that we see today. You know, the thing is too, it doesn't matter how old something is. The, uh, in my opinion, you could actually sit down and create your own runes. As long as you had a clear conception of what each symbol meant, and you could still work with your unconscious using that system wouldn't you agree and in that case i wouldn't call them runes i would call them sigils yeah yes i i I can see the distinction because a rune is a very distinct cultural uh tool or or language uh that has its own evolution but what i'm saying is you can use the concept of the rune or the tarot or the archetype or the symbol or the sigil and ultimately you could you'd take you'd have to be quite knowledgeable in order to create a broad enough system to actually work but ultimately what i'm saying is these are tools for getting behind the conscious mind into either the superconscious the subconscious or the unconscious however you want i think all of those are just distinctions that human beings make for consciousness but um 
I, I think that somebody that wanted to do that could do that. I mean, I've known a number of experts in tarot to create their own tarot and even encourage their students to create their own tarot so that they, so that they have an intimate connection to it. Yep. And I do invite people to do that sort of with the runes. I'll advise them to keep the shape and the name of the rune, because if you're tapping into the sound and the shape, you're building up what I call temporal resonance. You're singing the same rune with the same intention, with the same shape as people have for the past 2000 years. So it builds that resonance together. But if you want to call it a different name for yourself and you want to apply it into a unique setting for yourself, you're doing no different than the ancestors who originally named Fehu Fehu. If you want to call it capital investment for you, then that's perfect. That's your capital investment is your Fehu. Well, also based on the science of sonic geometry, the angles and the shapes of the symbols will be tapping into a cosmic force. Absolutely. I did a video on the angles of the runes they're all 30 no they're all 60 and 120 degree angles which match the exact same angles found in quartz crystal and in water crystals so there is a definite crystalline aspect in the cosmic geometry of runes and you've just described two of the things known in the world to be the most effective at transferring the highest and widest range of vibrational signals of anything Exactly. And the runes are the geometric embodiment of that exact same thing. That's awesome. What a phenomenal journey, man. It's like I'm digging, paddling this Viking boat with you, buddy. That's great. I'm loving it. Thank you so much for this. This has been extremely wonderful. I'm, I'm totally, I was psyched when it started, but after this, I'm like, wow, finally somebody who gets us, somebody we can con communicate and stay in contact at this higher level of, and this deep stuff. It's just, wow. Yeah. You know, I think some of us were sent here or chose to be here as teachers, but to uh, feel more at home and in, in higher vibrational spaces. I got the sense that you're one of those people that came to the earth plane to uh, fulfill your mission, to support others in reaching higher consciousness so they could figure out the grand puzzle I have one final question to close the interview uh, other than asking you to give us websites and stuff like that. If you knew you were going to die tomorrow, what message would you leave humanity before you leave? Live it, be it, do it right now. Just do it. Yeah. Do it. Just do it. Do love, do life. Stop holding back. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Let, let, your, let yourself be you instead of being what everybody else wants you to be. Exactly. Yeah. Just let yourself be. I mean, a lot of the messages that I get from the whispers when I'm asking, like, what do I need to do? Where do I need to go with this? And it's like, I'm always overthinking and I'm procrastinating, dragging my feet, thinking about it too much. And their answer is always just do it. Just act, <laughs> just act on it and make it happen. Stop thinking about it so much. Just go do it. I'm like, really? I'm like, yes, just go do it. I'm like, fine. Yes. Yeah. What what a what a beautiful truth and and how much freedom people would have if they just broke free of all the worries about what everybody else thinks all the time. It's like, give me a break. I tell people opinions are like assholes. Everybody's <laughs> got one and not a lot of them smell too good. So exactly. you, you might as well 
learn to enjoy your own smell. And as long as you're not rubbing it in someone else's face, you'll probably be okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, how do people find your website and anything else you want to share? And you were going to um, offer uh, some kind of a discount on a course, uh, if I remember right. Um, if that's something you want to share now or you want to wait until Penny has the information to put it in later, that's okay too. Well, let's do it. Uh, the good website to get a hold of me is kadrick.com, uh, K A E D R I C H. That's my main website. And uh, I am all over the place Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. So definitely just look for my name. You can't miss it. And I do have a website out there that is specific to rune work and rune song called Galder. And this website is called Galdra Craft. It's an old Norse term. I'll spell it for you. It's G-A-L-D-R-A-K-R-A-F-T. It translates to the power of rune song, but galdracraft.com. And if you do galdracraft.com slash abyss, I've got a music program that I wrote, a meditative program that takes you into, let's say, the darker side of your soul. This isn't shadow work. We talked earlier about how the darkness is a substrate of reality of pure consciousness. So it uses a bit of some darker music to get you into the depths of your soul to find the source of creation, to create your own astral temple, to connect with different aspects of your higher self, like angelic parts, the adversarial aspect, and your own higher being. And with these are five songs, and in each one of these songs, I've got a meditative guide that gives you three focus intentions, so you can really focus on the different aspects of it. But for you guys here, I've got a special. If you go for the guided practice, it will give you two one-hour sessions with me where we can talk about your particular challenges, the stresses that you've got in your life, or some spiritual goals that you want to reach. And we will refine the focus intentions for those songs and some spiritual practice for you so that it custom tailors the work that you would be doing with the Abode Upon the Abyss music so that it works specifically to the goals that you're trying to reach and to overcome some of the challenges you're dealing with at the spiritual level. And right now it's normally priced at 250 but the guys listening here, if you use the code ABYSSCHECK, that is A-B-Y-S-S-C-H-E-K, that'll give you 50 bucks off of it. So you get, it's basically, you get the music for free. All you're doing is just paying for two one-hour sessions with me and it'll help really tap you into the core essence of your being, the root of who you are and how that reflects throughout your entire spiritual nature and your spiritual being. And then that becomes reflected in the life around you. That's awesome. I think that's a phenomenal opportunity and journey and it's a very unique offering you don't hear actually that's the first time I've, I've heard of a course offering quite like that so i think that's really magical and what an opportunity for people to dive into a norse venture or journey into themselves something very you know not so common in in our sort of everyday reality you know it's not your typical course out there and I think anybody that's been listening to this knows you're not the typical guy by now. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, you're, you're definitely, you got wings on you there, buddy. Thank you. So, uh, what a phenomenal journey. And, uh, I, all I can say is Kedrich, I love you, buddy. You're a star and thank you for shining your light so brightly and being so honest and so open. And, uh, may this be the beginning of, uh, uh an unknown number of, 
dialogues between you and I to share as much love, wisdom, and resources and opportunities as we possibly can. I love you too, man. This is great. And I'm looking forward to the future. We've got some amazing times ahead of us. This is going to be great. Yes. Aho, great spit. Well, everybody, thank you very much. Um, Hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you for any of the purchases you make from the sponsors. It supports me and being able to support you with the time, energy, and work it takes to do the work to formulate, run, and manage the podcast and go out and find great minds like Kedrich Olson. And uh, if you love the podcast, share it. I think anybody of you that were listening and made it this far knows that there is a lot of really great wisdom being shared that can give you a much broader perspective on life and create a lot of openness and freedom in your heart and soul so that right now in the world where there's so much confusion and chaos, we can realize, wow, we have a really great opportunity to create something beautiful together and make room for each other and come back into harmony with nature, right? Just like you said, Kedrich, we got to pay attention to the hardware and work on our software of reality. And the reality of it is right now, we need to repair the infrastructure or the hardware that keeps us alive and work together on our software to get past racial differences and individual differences and political and religious differences and realize we're all expressions of the one. Exactly. Let's make love together and stop burning buildings down and injecting each other with toxic shit in the name of illusions. (laughs) Totally agree with that. (laughs) All right. All right, everybody. Lots of love. I'll see you next time. Aho, great spirit. Thank you, Kedrich. Hail to you and thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Kedrick Olson. Visit Kedrick's website for a special saving on his guided practice, Abode Upon the Abyss. Save $50 when you use the special code ABYSSCHECK. Go to kedrick.com forward slash abyss. That's K-A-E-D-R-I-C-H dot com forward slash A-B-Y-S-S and use the code ABYSSCHECK. That's uppercase A, lowercase B-Y-S-S, uppercase C, lowercase H-E-K. You can follow Kedrick on Instagram at Kedrick underscore Olson or on Facebook and YouTube at Kedrick. Visit galdracraft.com for more runes, ritual, music, and magic. Follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at Living4D Podcast or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash Living4D with Paul Check. Remember, you can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and at the Czech Institute's new media site, chakiva.com. Music